always makes me uncomfortable. So we should just do the Lewis relationship show. You know, there's like a whole show about Lewis and his relationship. Like it could be everything from like relationship advice to Mike's past son. girlfriends. Past girlfriends. You can have like Joe Camper come on. What about fucking? Like he's not there. <laughs> yeah, uh, Grace, Grace just has the benefit of like 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 ten years of marriage to like put all this. We're married. We're married. Kissed. What we have going on is quite boring. We're, we're talking about you. What you have going on? <laughs> Which is interesting. We'll get into it one these things. All right. Yeah, welcome to the- Hammer Factor episode yeah. eighty three. <laughs> Uh, we got quite the show lined up for you. We've got uh, an interview coming up with, oh man, who I would consider, we have two people on the show on this interview, and I would say both of them are in the top 10 most influential paddlers of all time. Would you say that? That's a big claim. That is a big claim. Let me just think about it for a second. Anyway, I would go there. I would say that they're both on the list or pretty close to top it. 10 top 10 top 10 all time like if you were making a top 10 list you would those names would be on it for sure or they'd be in the contention i mean i feel like they would for me i feel like they would both be on it most influential influential I have to, to say their one. names. Can we say the names yet? I mean, they're going to be in the title anyway, right? So we might as well. <laughs> yeah, we have uh, we have Scott Lindgren and Rush Sturgis coming on to talk about all things paddling. They just released a movie, The River Runner, which we had an opportunity to do an advanced screening of. Um, I don't want to get into your guys' thoughts of that right now. We'll talk about it when we get them on the show. But we got to see that. Um. I'm a little too deep. I'd like to introduce my co-host. My name is John Grace. I'm the producer here at the Hammer Factor. I'd like to introduce Lewis Geltman, policy director for the Outdoor Alliance, and John Weld, co-owner of Immersion Research. It's been a while. Mm. What's up? What's been going on? I've been boating a bunch, like a lot. I bought a, I bought a, uh, a Puffy Steez yesterday. No way. Yeah, I took it down Great Falls, like four laps. And uh, I have a sinus infection that is just—it's going to kill me. I think <laughs> this will be my last show. Um, How did you like the puppy Steve's? It's great. It's great. You know, I've been using the OG, so I'm paddling OG a bunch. And the OG—you know—what all you want to do in the OG is just boof and skip. That's what that boat wants to do, and that's what you want to let it do. You know, it's not really like a, a performance machine when it comes to any turns and that kind of thing. I just felt like the Steve's was. It just got me more into that arena, which, which is where I want to go. That's I, I want that to be my little white boat this winter, is the Puffy Steez. That's my yeah. goal. It's, I love it. It's like, it's such a magic boat out there. It's like almost to the point where like, if I'm running something and I can't paddle that boat for whatever reason, it's like diminishes my enthusiasm. And it's so good on the little white. Yeah. Well, the thing it's, is, Aiden came back from world class, fired up to paddle. And he got me out paddling to his credit. So we've been doing, I mean, shoot, we did, I don't know, Cispus, a bunch. We laid treats, like power treat. I power treated so hard in the Cispus last weekend with Geltman. I mean, I hurt, I hurt my back. <laughs> <laughs> it 
we're like we're like in the eddy below behemoth like the big drop on the sismus and i'm just like i'm like hold on john like did you actually hurt yourself or are you just whinging and john's like i'm just whinging it's fine i'm like okay go on i i i landed so flat i i smelled bananas i smelled like i had like an olfactory sensation well the thing is you know i'm, I'm figuring like my kid went to world class and it was however much money it was and I'm trying to amortize the treats with him. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm down to like $750 a treat right now. <laughs> I want to get down to like pennies per treat. Where he's just, he's just dishing them out. You know, it's just pennies per treat. Or they're, they're nothing. They're next to free. But right now the treats are quite expensive. So each time he lays a treat, there's like a monetary um, figure yes. uh, related to yes. that. Yes. I'm taking it I off like my, my balance. Aiden's, Aiden was looking pretty styly out there. Yeah, I, I know it's great. It's real exciting. Has he uh, has he passed you up yet, John? I would say, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, yeah I'd say was. so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you want to like, see that as a parent, yeah, you know? When I'm like, who do I have to look out for in this rapid? It's definitely more John than Aiden. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that tells right there. I like that. Yeah. Now, yeah, so look out for. <laughs> He's talking about. Oh man. What about you, Lewis? Last time I saw uh -huh. you, I was crawling out of my van. Oh man, in Idaho. So what do you? Been yeah, up to? we need to get into your impressions of the North Fork race. Your first time out there, but I'm I'm pretty much just paddling surf ski. Um. <laughs> Whitewater is the best whitewater in the Columbia Gorge right now is on the Columbia, no doubt. He said that. First of all, I sold my surf ski, just for the record. And he Thank said you. that he made that exact same quote in the middle of CISPIS, you know, when the CISPIS was running, like CISPIS season. And I so I categorically, you know, reject the idea that that was the best whitewater in the gorge. Dude, you're totally wrong. I mean, the CISPIS is fun, but like, I mean, it's like, yeah. You're wrong. I don't know what to tell you. It's like, like when it when it's really blowing, it's like, I mean, I have one. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, like imagine like Rocky Island on the Potomac, but the river, the waves are like twice as big, and it's like fifteen Rocky Islands like side by side, and you're like paddling up this thing, like surfing up from like one wave to the next for like like seven miles. I just didn't feel that. I wasn't. You just I didn't get my, enough time. I sold my boat to Calhoun. That there could not be a better owner for that boat than Calhoun. Calhoun is gonna get into it. He's gonna be fast in like no time flat. Right. He's got the like wild water sprint background, knows how to use a wing, doesn't mind grinding. He'll get good quick. Yeah. I couldn't help but be out there just look at the kite boards and be like, that looks more fun. <laughs> a race the uh gorge brown win championships <laughs> yeah so how'd it go Lewis? i saw you like 30th or something up there something like that um it was cool i uh i don't know it's fun doing something just like totally different and like feeling like you know like i feel like i'm like getting better in the surf ski like every time i go and like i do not really have that sensation paddling whitewater anymore and uh i don't know there was like a good handful of whitewater guys racing like um jamie Klein's like a long time west virginia boater like lived up in bellingham for a long time now um leif anderson um 
uh, Austin Kiefer, who won, is a um, former slalom racer and like super badass Sersky paddler now. Um, Hipgrave did well. So I don't know. It's like those are the only guys I really know. So like all I really want to do is just like get I don't know, just battle it out with other white water guys. Really. So to be clear, we I went out one day with Hipgrave before I I sold the boat. And Hipgrave shows up, and this is the crowd we're dealing with. Full Lycra body suit, right? Full body. Heart rate monitor, five-toe socks. <laughs> right? That's your crowd. That's your peeps. I mean, dude, it's not... I'm, I'm not, like, look, I have friends. Like, I don't need to make new friends. I just want to, like, you know, battle this boat because it's cool. And, like, dude, honestly, the, the Lycra long sleeve thing after... It's like so brutally sunny. It's not like the real river where there's shade. So I'm like, oh man, like I might need one of those. I don't know. Dude, I mean, not to it's a conversion. Kid, bro. He's, this he's is a, a conversion. great guy, an amazing paddler, but that's a, that's an outfit. <laughs> that's an outfit you have to get into. Yeah, Weld sent me that picture. You just gotta was... embrace. You just gotta let go of your ego, man. Just embrace being a tool bag. Can we change the conversation to paddle feather for a moment? Should I do an issue a trigger warning? Dude, are we not done with this? We had a very frank discussion about this on the river the other day. But it was the exact same thing we've been saying on here for... People just need to cut it out. You need to get a 60-degree offset paddle and stop with it. Thank you. That's it. That's I'm done. That was my PSA. <laughs> Is this Grace, what did you think of Northbrook? Yeah. I mean, it was so fun. It was... Number one, like, I love the Idaho scene. I can't believe it's been seven years since I've been out there. So... It was really cool just to tap back in. Um, the event was great. We went out there and, and did a live stream from the event, and that went really Dude, well. Congrats on pulling all that off, by the way, man. I mean, that looked like a huge undertaking. It, it is no joke a huge undertaking. I mean, like, you don't really realize what's going on, but till like, I pulled you in the trailer, and you're like, holy shit, all that's going on in that little white trailer? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like... There's a, there's a lot going on there, but you know, just big hats, hats, hat tip to everybody out there. I mean, James and Regan, they created, they created a beast, you know what I mean? Like, and there's a big difference between putting on a race and putting on an event, you know, and the, the North Fork is an event, you know, it's like a multi-day event. And you know, the, the Voorhees have taken that over and this was the first year they put it on and it was I mean, talk about the hustle, dude. Like, at one point, you know, Alec, it's late in the day. I'm running cables trying to get my stuff set up. Alec is literally limping down the road, trying to move road cones, blood spilling out of his leg from, like, falling out of the back of a truck earlier, trying to get all the stuff done. That morning before the race, Mike is running up and down the road, the ramp's coming together, and at one point he's like... He's sitting there and he's talking to James and he's like, dude, it's like two hours before the start of the race. He's like, dude, we're not going to get this done. And James looks right at him. He's like, no, dude, we're right on time. <laughs> and it was, just, it was just like, you know, just, I mean, I love that hustle and like the pressure of getting it done, you know, all right on time. And it was sick. It was awesome to see, you know, there were, there were some things that like kind of blew me away. I always looking at that event was jealous that it was roadside that there wasn't the logistics of having to get everything down in a big canyon and whatnot. But when I was there, it presented a whole new list of challenges from dealing with traffic and the road closures and that whole permitting process. And there's all kinds of behind the scenes stuff I could go on uh, 
um, about that, but it was rad. I had a great time. I was, I, I, it, it was, it was just really cool. I mean, the course was awesome. It was set up. There was, uh, it was good competition. Um, I gotta say, I gotta give a big hat tip to Sage, who was on the last show. You know, she was out there at sunup when I was there doing practice laps when nobody else was around. You could tell she was fully zinning in on it and, and wanting to make it happen. You know, Dane, he's just like, he's just on such an insane level right now. You know, it's like you just watch him and you're like, the level of consistency is just, you know, it's it's hard to match. Although Alec did give him give him a run for his money in that in that one run, but it was sick, man. It was sick. I partied a little too hard on Saturday night, um, but I guess that's kind of the issue. I mean, kind of the kind of the standard there. I know that. And well, thanks for letting us borrow that generator because we did need it. But I know that Lewis, my text blows up. You know, Sunday morning, I'm definitely in kind of a broken state, and it's just going off, and I'm like wake myself up in the van and i'm like texting lewis i'm like yeah this is where i'm at you can come get the generator but he's like all right well, you know we're getting ready for a north fork lap and like no sooner than i can put my phone down like i look out the window and there's lewis like right outside the door and i'm like all right i gotta take a step back here or i'm gonna get myself self lost <laughs> but <clears throat> it was good man i had a great experience live show was kick-ass it was uh you know there's angles and shots and ways of viewing the river that you never could without what we had going on out there. So, um, it was sick. It was sick. You can still watch it. I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can check it out. Um, are there show notes? There's really show notes. Yeah. There's always great show notes. Someone was questioning the existence of the show notes in one of the emails. (laughs) Well, you know, they could be a little bit more elaborate, but the relevant information is there. But it was sick. Louis, you think you're ever going to get back out there and race that thing again? I don't know, man. I think I might be done. I'm just well, like... It's mostly it's flat water from here on out, I think, for Dalman. I mean, <laughs> judging, going to, judging from the, the previous way, conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's going to be the end of your shoulder, by the way. You think? Yeah, I mean, the RPMs you're doing out there is pretty substantial. It, it still hurts from that race. But you, yeah. you got a wing, too, right? Yeah which is magnifying the torque on your shoulder, you know, by threefold. I think I just need to work on my technique with the wing a little bit and maybe get another shoulder surgery. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or that. Yeah, it was, the North Fork was cool. It was good to, uh, it was interesting. Like, did we lose Grace? Are you still there? Yeah, I'm yeah. here. No, I'm here. Um, yeah, it was, I don't know, it was interesting after, you know, like after a year off and, you know, a lot of the international folks not able to travel, it seemed like, you know, like to me, the men's fields didn't seem quite as deep as it has in the past. Like there were a lot of notable people missing to me. Um, and then also a lot of, you know, younger paddlers who were like in there and fired up and it was, I don't know, it was just, it felt like the torch had really been passed. Like, you know, after James and Regan, Passed the event on to the Voorhees, and there was a year off, and um, it felt like like a new a new North Fork in a way, you know. Um, 
but yeah, like Dane, just always impressive. Um, it was really cool to see Alec get on the box, you know, I mean, I think nobody is more, uh, motivated to win that race than he is. And it was just, I feel like every year he like looks really fast and isn't quite able to like put it together in the final the way he would want to. And it was good to see him finally, uh, you know, have a really good run. That was, uh, that was sweet to see. And, you know, Jeremy Nash on the box too was, uh, yeah, yeah. Seeing the the next generation out there, he had a you know really impressive run. But then you know even more than all that, I mean, it was just really cool to see the uh, yeah the women's class like really like coming into its own, like to like really be like okay, we're gonna have a full you know five person women's class, and you know seeing like you know thirty plus women racing in the qualifier, and like you know a good competitive final. You know, I think the only thing that was really missing for me is like it would have been like I just really wanted to see like the women's winner make all the gates, you know, and it was just like kind of a bummer that that didn't happen. But like, you know, obviously, um, like it was right on the cusp, right? I mean, it's not like Sage hadn't been making all the gates or like Natalie hadn't been making all the gates and, you know, seeing Darby put down a good run was sick and like it's just, uh, I don't know, it's just cool to see the progression there. Yeah, and dude, in the practice, man, like Holt McWork was look, McWirt was looking really good in some practice runs. Dude, I got to give it up for uh, your boy Max Blackburn squeaking, <laughs> squeaking in there, dude. I was calling it the whole time. I was like, dude, you got it. And he sends me a text when he made it through, and he was like, I blame you for this, Grace. I was like, yeah, he was really hoping not to make the final. <laughs> yeah, but he did well. I mean, he looked good. Um, there were a lot of people, and, and that international field will come back. You know, it was like that. I yeah, mean, you know, totally. That's, that's that has nothing. It's just to do. this year, yeah. yeah. Um, um, and, and I want to give yeah. one more shout out. I'm sorry before we uh, to Natalie Anderson who donated her prize money, um, which which I thought was a, a really cool cool cause to to some women athletes out there. Um, I don't know. Go on, Lewis. Sorry to interrupt. Oh yeah, I was just gonna tell the max story about max and i two years ago you know it was like pretty high water and we both made it through into the semis and thought that we'd made it into the final like because it was that head-to-head business and you know it was max versus tyler and me versus uh mike dawson and tyler was like uh i think i made some mistakes and dawson was like uh i think you got me bro and me and max are just like walking around at the park and crouch with like our head in our hands just being like i don't want to race the final like just <laughs> and then they announced the results and neither of us made it in and we were like the two happiest losers ever we were just like straight to the bar you know <laughs> No, it so was... tomorrow, tomorrow is the upper yacht race. Hundred people again. Once again, over hundred people. Sick, dude. I don't want. I just want to slip that in before it gets too before it gets too late here. Are you racing? Uh, I probably yeah. Why not? What yeah, are you gonna? Kara's up there. Kara's there right now, getting everything organized. She did a run today with Aiden. So is and Aiden racing tomorrow? I think so. Yeah. Is Kara uh, racing? I don't know. She's probably timing, and she may do a timed lap when she gets done or something. She has a boat. Like I know she has a she has a boat for it. What boat are you gonna race? Whatever I can find. So I mean, you have a quiver of like wild water boats and like old phoenixes and like. Well, Kara has the good phoenix. I'm not. 
I'm not really trained up for a wild water run. I need a little more practice before I take my DR boat down that thing. You've been, <laughs> have, you've been paddling like, a, like a surf ski, dude. Closet coffin right now. What's that? <laughs> you've been paddling a surf ski. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so who's going to win between you and Aiden? That's the big question. Uh, oh, depends on the boat. But if we have a comparable boats, I'll I'll take Aiden, no problem. You, you got a little more grind. You got a little more grind left in you. You know yeah, I mean? I know. despite what Lewis thinks in terms of me needing some help down the river, like a <laughs> like a geriatric old man, I still I still have a few tricks on my sleeve. Um, <laughs> well, let's transition from there. Lewis, do you have any policy updates, real quick, before we move to our guests? That I'm very excited for this interview with Mr. Scott Langren and Mr. Rush Sturgis. What is going on um, on the Outdoor Alliance policy front? We were hiring. Um, if you would like to be, what's, a what's my If you'd like to be a communications associate or a policy associate, um, we have job applications up on the site right now. Um, I think the range we put down for those jobs was forty-five to fifty-eight. Um, so yeah, if you want to come on, what's the vacation look like and benefits? Benefits are good. Paternity um, leave? Yup. <laughs> <laughs> Rental leave, health insurance, vacation. I'm not sure what the starting vacation is, um, but it's good. We get one Friday off every month. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a good place to work. Does this person? Work yeah. Does this person work directly with you? Are you like their this boss? Person, this person would work directly for me. Ooh. Which is a, wow. a, a scary place to put yourself into. <laughs> okay, so this is like your henchman. You're like, I'm gonna. Right. I'm actually gonna pull my application to that mind. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of people just stop typing. <laughs> the description should be Lewis's henchman. Yeah, that could be. Uh, we worked in there. Okay. If you get a t-shirt yeah. made, whoever whoever gets the job gets a t-shirt. You do that. It's <laughs> some sort of hazing operation. <laughs> they have to do. Yeah, they have to cool. sit in for you I mean, on a show. Do they have to listen to you talk about how great the Flatwater Mountain is? <laughs> it's like, um, out of got to sit in on the camera factor. <laughs> oh, um, but yeah, I don't know. It'll be cool. I'm excited that we're we're growing and kind of building out our program and getting more people in the game and you know hopefully going to be able to kind of expand what we can do. And uh, Weld has had to mute himself. He's all laughing so hysterically right now. I'm just picturing <laughs> you and your assistant like in matching full body lycra suits in your house there, <laughs> getting ready to go paddling. <laughs> That's just the progression. <laughs> If you get to start off and get rad for, you know, like if you're starting in your 20s, you got another 15 years of, of getting rad before you move into the old man sports. Mm. Someday, John, you're going to... I just, I still can't believe that. It, I thought we had you, man. I thought it had all the things you needed. It's like we, we went one day. And you were like, "Wasn't that great?" That was like, a, you and you sort of said it was like as good as it gets. Or you get one day like that every year or so. What? That's what you said that day we went. Yeah. And no, you guys at the end were like, "Yeah, you get days like this like every once a summer or twice a summer." And I was like, eh. and you just go from you go from the same place. You put in a drain of lake and you paddle to the mouth of the white salmon, right? That's that's what we do. I mean, that's what that's what I've been doing. I mean, there's more to Listen, do. Listen, it's fine. I, I I get it. I totally get it. You know what I mean? I bought a boat. I mean, I was I was 
you know, interested enough. Like, gave her. Or, but I just, it's just not my thing. <clears throat> Guys, I feel like it's like we can't so talk more about the dynamic of environment. It's than just not detaining. interesting. This is just not. I know we need another, <laughs> another podcast. Yeah. This, <laughs> yeah. We need to do another podcast. Is just for flatwater people. Yeah. Like dude. and hip grave can <laughs> compare like heart rate. It's the future. We're gonna ask Rush about it. Rush just got out in the surf ski. Dude, a couple I got, days ago. I got Get three killer bumps, man, back to back. Yeah. All right, I got to switch into producer mode here. Can one of you guys take over and introduce? We've had Rush on the show, so I'm not sure he needs as much of an introduction to our audience, but. Does Rush need an introduction? I don't know. You tell He's me. He's a guest who needs no introduction. I think something interesting about having, you know, I feel like Grace and Lindgren, at least in my own experience, were sort of like they were really two key links in like the popularization of kayaking in California, you know, no question. Like I mean, from my perspective, no question. Yeah. Like, I feel like, I mean, there was like the, like Chuck Stanley, Lars Holbeck generation. Yeah. And then, you know, again, just as like a total outsider. And then like the next thing you hear about is, you know, Scott and his generation really pushing things. And then, you know, grace, it seemed like really just like brought that, to the east coast to the point that it's like you know sure. all of a sudden that's like the kayaking trip that you go on if you're staying in the united states you know for sure like i remember growing up like this before i mean this is way back for the internet in the 90s or whatever and we thought like california was like some kind of dancer doing burning man off a waterfall we were like wearing gloves or something we're like why would we and we had no idea i mean we had you know just no no clue what was going on out there and then it was like daniel who's like no you don't understand there's a whole you know, that's that's where it's at. Yeah. Anyway, we're just going to go ahead and talk over you, Scott. We'll, I, fill, we'll fill in. You just nod your head every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, I kind of want to apologize to everybody in California for all of that <laughs> hype about California kayaking. So, uh, man, you know, it's amazing. Even with all the hype, it's still a ghost town out here, bud. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we go kayaking all the time and nobody's on the river. Actually, the other day, uh, it was pretty unbelievable. Two days ago on Cherry Creek, there were 35 people on the river, which was, that's unheard of. That's insane. So, yeah, just it's still, not much has changed, man. The paddling community here is still, especially at the, on the harder stuff, is still pretty small. Feels still pretty you small. You don't feel like there's a wave of, like, East Coast, or just boaters in general going out there to prove themselves out there? That's like a thing now? I mean, obviously, when the High Sierra stuff comes in, you get you get those crews that that come in and 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 do the High Sierra stuff. But like the the low hanging fruit stuff, you just don't yeah. see it as much. Like you know, the South Yuba, or the Upper Middle Consumnes, or even mm-hmm. Yuba Gap, or you know, like all that other stuff. Um, Silver Fork, Golden Gate, all that stuff. It's just ghost town. Nobody's there's like ten of us in the neighborhood, and that's it. I mean. Oh. Yeah, it's pretty, you know, obviously Upper Cherry Creek and Middle Kings and San Joaquin doesn't get done that much. Fantasy Falls, Royal Gorge. I mean, even the Royal Gorge this last year, I think, what, there was a handful of teams just because of the window. The window was only like, I don't know, maybe four days. I mean, you um, would think just because it was so short, you'd have even more people packed in there. But why? I mean, why is it? Like, what is it about that that's keeping... Um, groups out there, do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, I don't know. It's 
granite, clean water, high Sierras. Yeah. I don't know of another. I feel like I've searched far and wide to find a better place to go kayaking when the season's in. And, and man, it's this place is just not, nothing, nothing let me, really good. Let me know when you find it. Let me know when you find yeah, it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I actually saw an image somewhere in China that actually had like, you know, one of the things I used to do, especially in the High Sierra, mm-hmm. and this is actually how I found Upper Cherry Creek, was uh, I used to jump on the topos and I used to just look for granite. Like wherever there was granite, once I figured out that that was the geology of choice, and I just started like going everywhere looking for it. And, and actually, the, the biggest strain of granite in California starts on the North Stand and goes all the way through uh, Cherry Creek. And it's like one big slab if you look on a topo. And I was like, okay, we'll just start here and move south. Um, and so, yeah, I just think granite makes the the best rivers in the world and, and spent a good percentage of my life looking at maps, trying to find granite gorges. Well, I think, Rush, can you hear us? Yeah, yeah, got you guys. Can you hear me? Yep, mm-hmm. yep, loud and clear. All right, well, we got our panel here. We got our panel. It's nice to see everybody. Yeah. It's been a hot minute, John. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, big Lewis, thanks for coming on the show, guys. Or... Maybe we've met a few times over the years. Yeah, cross paths briefly, I think. But yeah. No quality time yet. Thanks for thanks for having us on. Super super grateful. I know that John um, and John have both been pushing us to to try to make this happen sooner and later and sooner than later. And so yeah, just super grateful to be here and finally make this happen. For sure, you can't have a kayaking show without without you on it. So oh man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to crack my first beer here at the show. You know, now oh, that we nice. got everybody, everybody on, go. so uh, so we can get into it. So, real quick, Scott, we got to get to the obvious. What's your paddle length and feather? Mm. <laughs> oh, this is so funny. Um, paddle length is uh, it goes between 197 and 200, and a 30 degree offset. Um, about Two years ago, annual was pushing me to go to 45. Benny pushed me to 65. <laughs> I dabbled and started missing rolls and then realized that I'd been at 30 degrees for the better part of my life. And why would I try to fix something that isn't broken? Mm-hmm. And promptly went back to 30 degrees and got my shitty roll back. If there From, is one yeah. negative to the to the high high degree feather, it does get tricky to roll on your offside. Oh, even like the back deck for me, I was copping back deck rolls, and my like my roll is terrible enough as it is, and then to throw the offset in there, and and I get it, you know, like a lot of the kids were like, you know, you you paddle too low, you know, bring your, you know, go more vertical, and so I, I really tried to like work on that, and. Uh, Actually, Annual gave me the best advice. He's like, dude, just put your paddle as close to the bow as the, uh, of the boat as you can. And I was like, okay. And then all of a sudden, it started to look a little cooler. And then, you know, <laughs> the rest is kind of But, man, you just get those old school habits. And then trying to break out of them is is, uh, is savage. And, and then, you know, you throw an offset in there. And then 
you start missing roles and your ego gets involved and then boom, you're right back to what you know. <laughs> Next time you're in town, Scott, we'll do a little role practice, man. We'll, uh, Jeez, yeah. man. I can video or something. We can yeah, I'd show up for that. Yeah, I like, think about that often. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> let's just get right into it. You guys got a movie that is coming out very soon. Um, man, I could go into my thoughts. We talked a little bit earlier that we got a pre-screening. Um, but Rush, can I just should turn we, it? Uh, what, what we got? give Scott a little bit of an introduction? I feel like everybody should know oh, yeah, who yeah, Scott yeah. is, but mm. probably does not. <laughs> do not. Well, Scott Lindgren is one of the most influential people. I mean, I said it earlier, is the top 10 you know, top 10 list of most influential paddlers that has ever lived. Uh, big inspiration to me, someone who's been paddling a long time and been to all kinds of places, fully pioneered, not pioneered, but took film production to a, a much bigger level and really put kayaking in front of more eyeballs than probably anybody I know. Um, from, you know, NBC Sports all the way through to the most core kayaking VHS DVD over the years. So I have a lot of positive things to say about Scott. Um, but, you know, I think in summary, you know, definitely one of the most influential pi- uh, whitewater kayakers to ever live, both filmmaking and expeditionary style. So that's, that's where I would go with that. I'd make the argument that Rush is probably the most influential paddler in the world. Well, see, this is this is interesting because we talked about this earlier. Um, yeah, I don't know. I appreciate that, John. Super grateful for your words, man. And um, I, I should uh, emphasize that this is Rush's film, and I just happen to be in it. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Rush, what's the yeah the film? What's the, the film is really more. It's more about me. Um, no, it's, uh, this is, uh, yeah, I mean, everything you just said, Grace, I mean, I grew up watching Scott's movies, you know, like from a young age, that was, um, those were the films that inspired me the most. I mean, I had, you know, all of them on VHS and, and that's what I would just watch on, on repeat over and over. Um, and actually, you know, the backstory on this is that I, I was actually kind of trying to get this film going as far back as, um, 2012 I wanted to make a movie called California kayak that was kind of like the original um kind of dream was you know something that just kind of chronicled a little bit of the history in California and I, I feel like in in Whitewater we don't always do the best job of um you know kind of remembering some of the folks that came before us and just kind of keeping good track of of um you know some of the more influential pe- people in the sport I, I think it's it's honestly done a lot better in other sports like climbing, mountaineering, skiing, et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, we have a little bit of it, but I think we need, we need more so that we can kind of preserve some of those stories. Um, but I, I couldn't get that project off the ground and, um, you know, it was, it was going to kind of be centered around Scott and I kind of just put it to rest. Um, and then it, you know, it wasn't until we actually did the middle Kings together in, in 2016, um, and I, you know, started like learning a little bit more about kind of what Scott had been going through and, um, you know, some of his ups and downs and such. And, uh, you know, that kind of over the course of a year or two kind of, um, you know, turned into 
uh, what the what the River Runner is now, and and that was honestly thanks to you know Scott being open with his story and and also me getting the invite to the Indus from from Aniol. Shout out to him for that. Um, and you know the rest is kind of uh, yeah the rest is kind of what what the River Runner has become. Hmm. So this project in your mind started in 2012, but you guys first talked about it in 16. Uh, we actually we actually talked about it back then. We talked about I had a proposal and everything put together for a, a California kayak film um, with Scott as kind of the centerpiece of it. But I wanted it to be more historical. Um, and in fact, even the River Runner was was initially kind of more focused around the history of paddling. Um, in fact, that's you know honestly probably one of the things I re- you know not regret, but I'm I, I sort of lament a little bit that we had to lose a lot of that history in the film because it really ultimately became a biography project about Scott. And that was just, you know, it, it just kind of is what it is, but there's a lot of people we interviewed that are amazing paddlers that I wish would have made the final cut. Um, you know, that, but it just, it just didn't quite fit this story. Well, that project. Yeah. The other thing too, that was pretty interesting when we, when we set off for the Indus. Uh, initially rush and i were like man let's let's do like a 10 minute youtube video and that's basically what it started out as is a 10 minute youtube video and then um we came back and rush cut like a five minute or six minute piece from the indus and you know on the indus and on the middle kings and on several other occasions i just you know got comfortable with talking about everything and He's like, man, maybe we should try to try to make a feature. And we sent the we sent the initial proposal out. What did we send it out to like 50 different people or something like that, Rush? I, I forget, but we sent the thing out to like everybody. We had an agent that was helping us out, and we were shot down pretty much by everybody um, to make the film. And then um, we fortunately were able to find a couple different folks that that stepped up and gave us an initial um, sort of off the ground, get the thing off the ground and, and get an edit. And then if the thing had legs, we would maybe be able to have access to more money. And so we, we, we did that first cut and then the, the folks that were behind it were, you know, psyched on what they saw. And so, yeah, it just, it just went from there and, and man, three and a half years later, it's like, wow, we're, you know, finally releasing this thing. I know, I know Rush has got to be sick of me at this point. You know, I call him all the time and ask him if he's, if he's pretty, still, if he's pretty still over it. I'm pretty fucking over it. For me. <laughs> you know, um, God, I just, I can only imagine. Yeah. Just the, and, and the effort that went into it is just so over the top. It's, 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 Man, there, there needs to be a film about that, to be honest. Well, I think Weld and I were talking, and we could see, we both commented on how much effort went into this project. Like, it, it shows Rush. So, just so you yeah, know. Yeah, for sure. Play. I mean, yeah. Gil and I sat down to watch it with a couple other people. My, my six-year-old was there, and this was on Monday. And, you know, it's a kayaking movie, so, I mean, that's, that's what I initially think. I'm like, well, I'll bring a, I'll have, like, a magazine ready, you know. Uh, just because I see my share of kayaking movies, and then my kid was like, "Who's a boater?" He's like, "Well, I'll start washing dishes and I'll keep checking in, right?" So the movie started, and he, my kid sat down next to me, and we watched it beginning to end without, without. I mean, we were, you know, uh, our attention was captivated the entire length of the movie, 
Um, now, there's a bunch of reasons for that. It's a great story. I knew a bunch of the people in it. Uh, the production value was amazing. And just before you know, you make any judgments about it, I have to say that anybody who's putting as much energy and time and thought into kayaking and paddle sports deserves a shout out. I mean, that's going to help our sport, you know, in so many ways. So, but having said that, I mean, obviously you went from a, a YouTube video to this movie. I mean, what, it, so after the movie, you know, we sat down, we're trying to figure out like, how to detangle this thing? Like, why did we, why did, what made this different? I mean, in your mind, like, what was the, what were the, the plot lines you brought together, the story, or what's the message you, you felt like you were hanging on to as you put this narrative together? Yeah, thanks for that. No, I, I appreciate that. And yeah, I feel like hopefully even if, even if people hate it, they, they'll at least uh, be able to see that a lot of work went into it. <laughs> um, so, um, but I uh, know, yeah, I mean, I, I think for sure this, this like film definitely pushed me as a filmmaker. It was, um, it, it went from, yeah, you know, more of a, of a sort of historical kayak movie to more of a biography film, which is way different than anything I'd ever done. And, and I think at its core, it's definitely a, a human story. I think that this is, um, this is different than a lot of what what's out there um, in the adventure sports arena. And, um, and, and, you know, that's, it, it's ultimately Scott's story and his willingness to talk about, um, you know, some of his challenges and uh, you know, what he's been through and how he's arrived at where he's at. Um, I think it's ultimately a story about um, healing, you know, which is, is not necessarily a, a destination, but it's a process. It's something Scott's still dealing with. This isn't like a story of somebody who's, um, you know, like perfect, no one is, but, um, it's a story about somebody who, who got better and, uh, and it's, and it's about that process, you know, so without kind of giving away too much of the film, I think, you know, at its core, it's like, if you, if you go into this expecting the next epic shred flick, you're going to be disappointed. And I know that kayakers out there probably will be, but, um, if you go into it with, you know, a different mindset, uh, and just a little more openness to, you know, learning a little bit about someone and their story, then you might enjoy it. Now, something I want to say before we get too deep into this interview is like, Rush Scott, at any point, if you feel like we're giving away too much of the film, just just be like, ah, you just got to watch it to get that answer or something like that. Like, <laughs> feel fully free to do that. You know what I'm saying? So I don't want to, I don't want to push too far, which sometimes is easy for me to do. So I uh, just, just want to throw that out there before we get going. I mean, part of the reason, I mean, one of the reasons I found this movie to be interesting was because Scott, I mean, Scott, you're, I mean, I don't know you that well, but you're, you're a, you're a difficult character, you know, I mean, you're a guy, you're a tough guy to know, and you're not the most successful kayaker. I mean, back in the day when you were really charging hard, you know, I mean, you were somebody that I was kind of intimidated to approach, you know what I mean? Um, I mean, that, that was you know, how, you know, how you make a movie about someone like that is something that was, that was interesting to me for sure. I mean, you guys, I mean, what do you guys think about that? Or my, I mean, Gellar, um, Grace, do you think I, I'm way I, off in that assessment or? No, I don't, I don't know that you're way off. I've been told that before. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, Rush and I've been close for a really long time. And, um, you know, I think for me, on a personal level, healing wise, um, you know, when I was diagnosed with my brain tumor, the first thing that I wanted, um, was nobody to know. And I made my family, I made Johnny and Willie, I made everyone swear 
that they wouldn't say a word because I looked at my tumor as weakness. Mm-hmm. And um, that kind of speaks to my front. And I think with um, once I kind of got over that and I was able to kind of open up and kind of outline the journey and Rush made it extremely safe. Um, yeah, I just became so much more approachable in that in that sense, you know, um, you know, maybe still, you know, I'm kind of introverted as as like as a as a trait I have, you know, and once you get to intimately know me, I, I tend to shine a little bit more. And um, I, I definitely struggled with um, every time somebody approached me, somebody wanted something from me. Mm-hmm. And um, so the easiest way to push that away was to maybe look to the ground and not, you know, look up. And so, uh, but when we were on the river, that's where I connected the most. And that's where my strongest relationships in life have resonated from. And that's what I held near and dear to my heart. And so, you know, when I was in public, I would definitely um, keep my inner circle tight. And um, yeah. That's fully understandable. Before we get, sorry, were you gonna say something, Rush? No, you're all good. Go ahead. Before we get too deep into this, because there's a lot to un- unpack and definitely got to be cognizant of not giving away the movie, but like there's just so many years of paddling and projects and places and just things that I know all the listeners are going to want to hear from you, Scott. And uh, I knew that this project was going to be different. Number one, talking to you a little bit before this, but when the out- that Outside Magazine article came out, it became very clear that you guys were going down like a totally different direction. Um, it mentioned some things about when you were young and various things. So I just want to start off by asking, you know, where are you from? Are you a mountain kid? You know, how did, how did kayaking become something you were doing? Uh, no, I was not a mountain kid. I spent a good proportion of my youth in the valley and in Southern California in pretty rough neighborhoods. Um, I got super lucky. I, you know, was basically moved to Rockland, California next door to a Grand Canyon river guide that had a guide school. And that's kind of what got me into the river scene. And, and yeah, I, I, um, got super lucky in that, that first sort of experience, my first river trip was Giant Gap on the North Fork of the American at like 15 years old. And that really changed my life. And then I went to guide school and that um, put a huge impression on me. And then I got super lucky right out of guide school at like 17 years old. I went and did two back-to-back uh, Grand Canyon trips and rode baggage. And that was just that just changed everything for me. At that point, I just knew that I wanted to run rivers. I had already started to kayak a little bit at that point. And, um, yeah, just changed the entire trajectory of my life, um, in, in a very short period of time. And the camera, when did that come along? The camera, you know, that's funny. A lot of people ask me about the camera. Um, that didn't come along till years later. Um, I didn't make my first film until I was 25 years old. 
Um, I had spent already five years in the Himalayas at that point. I had done a year in Costa Rica. Um, you know, I was living, you know, in 19, 20 and 21, I was living, uh, on the North Fork of the Payette. I was, you know, guiding for Cascade Raft Company on the South Fork of the Payette. Um, that's when I kind of met Jerry and Charlie. Um, and that's where Asia kind of Jerry you know, had spent so many years in Asia, you know, running equator raft and ultimate descents. And, and that's when I met those guys. Um, and, you know, Charlie and I went and did the Stikin when I was 20 years old and uh, came off of the Stikin and Jerry, you know, invited us over to come, you know, to Nepal. And I basically blew off school at that point and, you know, flew over to Asia. And, and that was really the beginning of, the end as far as like my trajectory and what I wanted to do with, with the rest of my life. I, I, I went to Asia and, and came back from Asia. And, and that's when I really started to open up the book on California because I was looking at California and, you know, Lars was close. You know, I, I got to paddle with Lars a lot as a kid and was super grateful for the time that I got to spend with him. But, um, I took that mentality from the Himalayas and I pushed it, to California and that, um, the mentality in the Himalayas was, you know, you would walk for days on end to get to a put in and put on in the middle of nowhere and run these things in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, you were doing ridiculous bus rides and, you know, basically operating in places where there are no rules and that sang to my heart and yeah, just, just got really lucky. <laughs> I feel like, and, and it was in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. And was super passionate about it. Um, the sport was turning over tenfold at that point, too. You know, the, the boat designs had been stuck in the 80s and 70s and 80s. And, and then in the early 90s, um, for whatever reason, new generation of paddlers, boat design started to, every year it seemed like tenfold the sport was turning over um, with new designs that was exponentially changing the face of what we were able to run and and, and, you know, just happened to be there with a handful of people. So you were wetting your teeth at kayaking at 17, and then by 20, you were on the Stikine. Yeah, three years. I like yeah. that. <laughs> and that, that was, yeah, that was, uh, that was the game changer, you know. Um, Charlie was obsessed. He was obsessed with the Stikin. The North Fork was the training grounds. Rob Lesser was around the North Fork. John Wasson was on the North Fork at that time. Ammons was on the North Fork at that time. I, I remember actually arriving in uh, Banks, and Ammons was working with uh, Wilcox, and they were doing the vertical mile where Ammons had paddled seven laps on the North Fork in a day, paddled something like a vertical mile, and I was in the parking lot and on the river when he, when he did that and, um, you know, started training on the North Fork with Charlie at the time, Charlie was the man on the North Fork. I mean, he was, he was, he's a little bit older than me. He's four or five years older than me, but he was, you know, he had the thing wired. He was hand paddling the North Fork, which nobody else was really doing. And this other is than Charlie Muncy to our audience. Charlie Muncy. Yeah. Sorry. Sure. I don't no. Yeah. Charlie Muncy. And so, yeah, he, and, and Charlie and I hit it off, um, and I started to learn the North Fork, and that's when the Stikine started to kind of come up. And it, it was in 19—I graduated high school in 91, so 92, um, 
you know, we went to Asia, came back from Asia. Charlie had gone up with Conrad and the, those two put on and did the fourth self-support descent of the Stikine, just the two of them. And Charlie came back from that trip and was like, man, we need to go run the Stikine. He wanted to go right back up the following year. And Jerry was working, Moffitt was working with us on the, on the, on the South Fork of the Pit, and we were basically running the North Fork. And that's when, you know, we, we basically made the pact to go up and, and do the fifth descent, uh, self-support descent of the Stikine. And then, and Ammons was, you know, Ammons was a, a figure back then. Um, he, he was, he, he was the only one writing about kayaking. I think his literature played, plays into his lore more than his actual kayaking feats, but he, um, he, you know, he was influential to Charlie. Charlie and him were close. And I, at the time, you know, had a lot of respect for Doug and, and, and he had just gotten, you know, I think he was maybe he had just done his solo the year before Charlie and Conrad had gone up. So, yeah, I mean, we, we conversed and I remember getting off that trip and I remember Charlie calling him when we got off the river and he asked me, you know, what it felt like in there. And I said, I felt like I just went to war <laughs> and, but I loved every minute of it. And, uh, you know, it was amazing. And, and to be able to get to write my name on that chalkboard, I don't know if you ever got to see the chalkboard or a picture of the chalkboard. First time I was there. Was yeah. And, and then that got taken down by the, by the dam builders that, that those buildings got flown out of there and stuff. But yeah, just to have your name on that chalkboard and, and look, look at the list, you know, and the history, um, on, on that, you know, everybody that I had an immense amount of respect for as far as expedition kayaking was concerned was, was on that chalkboard and was just so honored to be a part of it. So at some point, so that's interesting because I didn't realize you had spent so much time in Asia and whatever before you made your first film. Yeah, so the first film I actually was a part of was the first Descent of the Tuliberry. Um, the first, we, Charlie and I had gone over in 92 and then we made uh, an attempt in 93 on the Tuliberry. We walked um, something like nine days um to get into the bottom of the tuliberry and um this was in like i want to say late october middle october and we 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 get to the bottom of the gorge of of the tuliberry and realize that the river is like ridiculously way too high and we end up walking up you know probably about five five to seven K and realized that none of it was really runnable at the level that we were there at. And we turned around and paddled the 60 or 80 K out to the bridge. And then the following year we came back again and we, we, we flew into Dunai and we walked up to Lake Pocosindo and scouted that thing and scouted the upper reaches. And then the plan was to walk down the Tuliberry or, and, and, and scout it. And, uh, we were at the bar in Dunai and this Russian walks in and we start getting drunk with him and he basically is a helicopter pilot that was flying one of those uh, Russian uh, M15s 
And um, he's like, man, just jump on and I'll fly you down the thing on your way out. <laughs> and we're like, sweet. And so that's exactly what we did. We woke up the next morning, hung over, jumped in one of those double-bladed Russian helicopters. And he's like, come sit right in the front seat. And we sat right in the front seat. And he like flew us down and stopped above stuff and and we basically scouted the whole thing and we were just like holy shit man this thing's so freaking runnable we're coming back next year and uh that's exactly what we did we came back and and at that point we had reached out you know charlie was obsessed with trying to make a film on it and and we had reached out to john wasson and john wasson was kind of connected to the film world back in those days you know, he was he had done the river safety stuff with the River Wild and he was close friends with Roger Brown. You know, Roger Brown was the man. Um, you know, I would argue that outside of Rush being the most influential filmmaker, I would argue that Roger Brown is probably the most influential filmmaker in in, in the history of kayaking. Uh, you know, he's responsible for Walt Blackadar's, um, you know, Descent, the Devil's Canyon Descent. Um, made films about that. He's uh, responsible for the first descent of the Stikine. He's also responsible for the 1986 raft descent of the Stikine. He also did the Rivers of the Maya with uh, the Schneider brothers and Ammons down in Mexico on the Agua Azul. And he worked with Wilcox, American Adventure Productions. Those guys are out of Colorado. And um, Wilcox was actually the one that we had got connected with. And we had sent the proposal to Roger and Roger got a hold of it. We were shot down by National Geographic. Um, you know, they, they didn't want to have anything to do with us. And, and Roger picked it up and he sold it to Wilcox. And um, yeah, all of a sudden we went from two kids that really had no desire other than to go kayaking. And, and all of a sudden we had a film and Jerry was a part of it. And Doug Ammons was all of a sudden a part of it. And Danielle Christ was a part of it. And, and um, boom, 1995 flew over to Nepal, and the first ascent of the Tule Berry went down. Yeah, that goes. And that, that was my first exposure. What was happening was that there was this assistant that was along. Her name was Debbie, and it was Roger's assistant. She worked for Wilcox, and you know, uh, Roger was in his 60s at that point, and he couldn't get down to the river. And so Roger, you know, kind of threw it out there and asked if any of us would be interested in picking up a camera and you know shooting some of it and i was like sure i'll you know pick up a camera and uh so i picked up the camera and i just started to shoot a bunch of stuff at river level and and ended up shooting a bunch you know didn't really know what i was doing and and uh, the the film came out and it got accepted into banff and it won like best documentary at banff that year and and that was really the beginning um you know, at that point, and I had already been, you know, kayaking for, you know, it was like you know, 95, four years out of high school. I was 24 years old at that point, 23, 24 years old. So, yeah. There you go. That speaks to your point earlier, Rush, about the history not being told of the sport. That's the first I've ever heard of that. Yeah, that's a big chunk of kayaking history. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's uh, time, there, you know, that's part of it. I'm super excited because, um, you know, what I feel like you, um, to reference back to the outside article, you know, Rush and I had been working, you know, probably, what were we in, Rush, like two years or something like that before, you know, the outside article came out. And I had started working with Thayer and my 
disdain, I should be very careful here, my disdain for writers um, from the past, you know, um, was on high alert. And I had no desire to do the, the article. Um, and Thayer had reached out and he had pushed me, you know, you know, in interest. And I didn't know Thayer very well. I had heard of him, oh, you know, a few times over, you know, through a few instances. Um, we had spoke on the phone and stuff. But he, um, he came up and we hung out a little bit. And he's like, what's it going to take for you to do this article? You know, I think there's an amazing story here. And I was like, look, you know, I want, I, I need to know that you can understand what I'm trying to say and that it can be conveyed. And there, there's only one way that that's going to happen is if you give me editorial control. And he was like, fuck off, that's never going to happen. And outside's never going to go for that. And I was like, see you later. Have a nice life. I could care less. Um, two weeks go by. He calls back and he's like, dude, they gave you editorial control. That's only happened twice in the history of Outside Magazine. And I was like, okay, let's rock and roll this thing. So Thayer and I sat down for the better part of three weeks and we, I basically dropped the bomb on him. And he's amazing. Uh, he was able to articulate in a way that I'm dyslexic. I can't write for anything. And he was able to articulate in a way that um, was unbelievable. And, and so the article came out and, you know, Rush read the article and we chatted and it was the decision was made to bring Thayer on as a consulting writer for the film. And I think that that, along with Rush's assistant editor, Aiden, um, really changed the trajectory of the film. Aside from the fact that, you know, we were looking at making more of a film for the community versus making a film for a broader audience. And when those two came on board, it really... I, I started to really feel comfortable with everyone. I mean, I knew... I. I've known Rush. I had an immense amount of trust, and I knew that he was going to do the most incredible job ever. Um, but once those two were brought on, I was like, "All right, I've got nothing to lose here. Let's let's just send this thing and and let the whole world know what's going on from top to bottom." Yeah, because because I, I think at that point I was I was like I was really struggling with all of the threads that we kind of had going because we had a cut of the film at one point that was like two hours you know and um, it's it, the finals like eighty six minutes or something so um, I think there was an overwhelming amount of history and this sort of kayaker nerd in me like really wanted to 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 uh, respect that and to show a lot of those threads and it was pretty heartbreaking honestly to have to cut so much of that this like the stories that scott just told for example um you know and to and to have to uh cut rob lesser and jerry moffett and mark hayden and all these like in incredibly awesome paddlers and influential people but at the end of the day that's kind of um what editing is and that's really where bringing in a professional writer thayer walker and then um aiden haley a professional editor who helped me with that process um i think it definitely definitely changed the film a lot, you know, for, I think for the better, for a more mainstream audience, you know, maybe, maybe someday there'll be a, a kayaker's cut or something. I don't know. 
<laughs> yeah, we, we've we've talked about that. So back to your original thing there, John. Fair and I basically from the outside article and, and from the movie, um, we uh, signed a deal a little over a year ago with uh, Penguin Random House, and we're doing a full-fledged uh, book together. Oh, cool. So all these intricacies in these stories are hopefully going to come out, and, and uh, yeah, mo- mo- hopefully most of it will come out, and, and uh, yeah, when did people the- will have an interest intricate look inside when did the four rivers plan hatch and kind of oh, described, right described our listeners what that is uh, yeah man so you know uh first of all i want to uh, uh how do i phrase this um, the accolade of the four rivers is I, I don't know that there's an accolade there um i i um you know for me the sang po was at the center of it and um it's uh right from my very first trip to nepal the same po came into play um charlie was absolutely obsessed with it um you know allardyce had been in there and walked along the po sang po david allardyce has since passed melanoma cancer and um he was incredibly i was incredibly close to him um i worked for him he ran ultimate descents in nepal he was the gas man. He made everything go in Asia. He was um, an incredible human being, hardcore on the first ascent of the Indus, 1981, uh, with Jerry Moffat. And uh, he had gone into Tibet and walked to Po Sing Po. And I had sat down, Charlie and I had sat down and, and looked at the images. And even prior to like the Tuliberry and all of that stuff, there was a moment actually. I don't know if you guys know this guy's name is Jeff Parker. He had got the Malden Mills grant um, back in the day when those guys were giving away 10,000 bucks. And Charlie and I are over in Asia. And this guy, he's from like Colorado. And he had reached out to us and he had heard that we were looking at the Sang Po. And um, that was the first sort of formal attempt. Um, he, we had hooked up in Pokhara. What year, what year was that? This is like uh, 1994. 94. So this is uh, three years before the first attempt in 97 with uh, with just Charlie and I on the Po Sang Po. And, um, you know, Parker showed up and he had been in Nepal about a month before we had gotten there. And this is a pretty funny story. He uh, he uh, he met us and he's like, hey, you know, I've got this grant. Let's you know, let's go over and we'll just we'll go to pay and we'll put on and we'll, you know, paddle out you know and and do the whole thing and so we're like sweet so we went to start organizing you know everything we started organizing vehicles to get into tibet wait wait um, he's gonna do the whole thing meaning from where to where we're basically gonna we were gonna basically go up the friendship highway yeah. we were gonna get to shigatsi we were gonna take the right turn we were gonna go to pay we were gonna put in and then we were gonna float into india and and then be completely <laughs> blacklisted we're, we're in heroes. china for the rest of our lives i mean did you guys and, know that it was below rainbow no Fox? i mean they had no fucking clue <laughs> as what was going on zero yeah, but it was a good plan before, at the time before the but, internet but and the thing was and all charlie and, and even back in those days uh charlie had had um you know maps and and we were we you know the only where did you get the maps from 
Well, there's a bunch of different stories on the map situation in Asia. I know because I have in Asia is terrible. Um, you know, we we had a trip planned there too, and or I was on a trip that was going there also. And yeah, well, do you remember the phone conversation that we had? Do you remember? No, Grace mentioned that. I swear to God, I don't. Um, you have a much better memory than I do, obviously. It's funny that you don't have any recollection of that. What did I yeah. say? Like, get off my turf? <laughs> no, not at all, man. You, actually, the, uh, the conversation was something along the lines. You had called me and said, hey, what's going on over there? I'm a little bit worried about the levels. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I was like, man, um, I've, I've been in touch with the boys over there, and they're on a 50-year monsoon. Yeah. And I was in touch with this guy named Lucas Bocas. He's an heir to the BMW family, <laughs> and he was obsessed with this uh, with the with the same Poe as well. Yeah. And um, he had developed this contraption actually that was this uh, bow and arrow with a line that he was planning to shoot across the arrow to get back and forth across the river if he got stuck on one side of the river or not. That seems, that seems reasonable. <laughs> so prior to, uh, you know, I was set to fly over, you know, right when you're, you know, when the Wick Walker crew was set to fly over, um, we, we both had caught wind. I, I had gotten money from outside. Those guys, you know, National Geographic chose them over us. Yeah, I, was on that, I was on that trip to the last minute. Yeah, I remember. And then yeah. you pulled it minute and 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 you know maybe it was because of our conversation maybe it wasn't but um they uh i get lucas is in uh in tibet and he goes out to pay and he's at pay mm -hmm. and uh, this is prior to any of us flying over this is like in september and you know at this point we're playing yin and yang uh you know i'm gonna i originally wanted to go in december i wanted to go with a lower flow Next thing I know, you guys are going in November. Next thing I know, you guys are going in October. And then at that point, I start getting phone calls, you know, from David and from everyone else saying, hey, look, we're, we're sitting on a 50-year monsoon, things raging. And Lucas had reached out to me on a couple different occasions, and I get an email from him. I get a message from him, and he's like, hey, can I call you? And I was like, yeah, call me. Um, this is the, you know, this is back in the day, too, when it's a big deal to make a phone call from Tibet. And, and I don't even think actually email was in play at this point. It might have been, but I kind of remember faxes. And um, he's like, don't come. The river's completely blown out. It's bank to bank. There's nowhere to move in there. It's, it's, it's not worth coming. And so at that point, I felt like I made one of the hardest decisions up until that point. You know, I was like, you know, okay. I pulled the plug and let, you know, those guys go for it. And, um, and, uh, I rebounded and two months, three months later swung into Nepal and drove eight days across the plateau, did the circumnavigation around Kailash and then did the headwaters of the Carnali, you know, 12,000 foot descent, 150 miles in 12 or 13 days, um, you know, with, with what I had basically sold as the same Poe had basically turned into the Carnali. And then, you know, after Doug Gordon passed, the Chinese shut the gorge down indefinitely at that point to most, almost all tourism. 
Um, and, and yeah, so it's kind of, but I had gone back in in 97. So, you know, that, that first it back to Parker, you know, we were in Nepal in, in 94 and, and basically, you know, he was like, let's go do it. And Charlie and I started to organize everything and, and we knew he had about 10,000 bucks and Charlie and I were up to eight grand in a blink. You know, by the time we calculated the food and the vehicle ride and the visas and everything to get into Tibet and then, you know, the whole thing, we were at like, I, I, we were just under 10 grand or right at 10 grand. And, and Jeff had come back to us and was like, um, man, I only got about $4,000 left from the 10 grand they gave me. I spent all the money and we're just like, okay, well, Charlie and I were broke. <laughs> And so, you know, we didn't have the money to basically go and pull this thing off. And that's when we kind of, you know, walked away from Jeff Parker and, you know, carry on. And then and then in 97, it was a similar situation where Steve Curry, who is probably the most underrated river explorer in the history of river exploration, period, he... Um, was on the first descent of the Congo, top to bottom, first descent of the Columbia River Gorge before it was dammed, first descent of the Fudulefu, first descent of the Bio, Bio. Um, He organized the first descent of the Salween, uh, raft descents. He had attempted to do a raft descent on the upper Sangpo. Um, he was incredible. And he reached out to me, and um, I had known him. Um, his father, he's, he's, his father was a Grand Canyon uh, outfitter. His dad invented the J-Rig, which is that huge motor rig. And that's where he was pulling his clientele to go do these trips. He reached out to me. He's like, man, I want to go rafting on the St. Poe. I've got clients that are going to pay $20,000 a pop. I got 10 of them. Go in there and figure that thing out for me. And I was like, I want to raft. Figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> you want to do a recon mission to the same pill and give Charlie and I a shot? And he's like, yep, and I've got the contacts to pull it off. And I was like, rock and roll, buddy, here we go. And so Charlie and I, just the two of us, with with Steve Curry and, and his one of his best friends, this guy Mark, who was on the first descent of the Congo with them, um, you know, they didn't run what Rush and Fisher and those guys ran. They they ran everything above and everything below and huge motor rigs something like the Prince of Wales ended up coming over and getting on their boat for half the trip. But, uh, yeah, we went over there and, you know, we showed up in April and it had already started to warm up. And what year, we what year to, was that? This is in 97. Right. In 97. Yeah. And so we, we went to pay and, and, you know, there's this interview, I'm sure rush came across, but we're just basically standing right at pay at the rapids. And we're just like, didn't even feel like we could move around in there. Just didn't even feel like we could make it to the other side of the river safely. Um, just felt like even even the side stuff was like off the scale. And um, so we wrapped around and we're like, okay, screw it. Let's not deal with the Upper Canyon. Let's wrap around Jalapuri and go do the Posangpo. And then, boom, get to the confluence and the gradient by then has, you know, exponentially less you know once you get down below the Paiu Gorge and the Luku Gorge um, from Goddam down which is the lower canyon um, it just looked more feasible on the maps and uh, 
so we cruise around and we get to the Po-Sang-Po and we, you know, and the Po-Sang-Po is huge. And we're just like, oh my God, this thing is huge. And it's just the two of us in the middle of nowhere with, with a guy that's kind of running down the road and, and running down a trail, two guys that are kind of self, you know, supporting us a little bit. And we put on and, you know, we did like three days on the Po-Sang-Po. And, um, that was you and Charlie? Charlie and I, yep. And it was loose. It was not the smartest uh, decision-making going on there. And um, we got to a point to where uh, basically um, pull the plug and we're just going to walk to the confluence. And we're walking and um, we run into uh, an American crew. We run into George Schaller, Ian Baker, Hamid Hardar, and Ken Storm. And those guys are in there, quote unquote, doing a documentary about the indigenous um, Ompas and Lompas, uh, the, the folks that live within the inner canyon of the gorge. And uh, long story short, um, they basically were going in and documenting the discovery, the white man discovery of uh, Hidden Falls and Rainbow Falls. Um, you know, they had basically not told us what they were up to. And, and well, how many I, wish I think F. Kingdon Ward was in there in the 19th century, right? That botanist guy. He was the he was the plant hunter from England. Yeah, exactly. And his book was our Bible. You know, right. we read Mystery Saint, Rivers of Tibet. 100 percent Shangri-La. Yeah. I mean, that was yeah. the whole lore. It was his book that drove the whole thing, you know. For sure. and so, yeah, yeah. And so. And then, you know, from there it was, it was, uh, we, we got to the confluence and, and, and the two rivers, you know, we sat there and, um, there was maybe a hundred, maybe 200,000 CFS in there. You know, it was ridiculous. It was right. so off the scale, even at the confluence, it was so off the scale. Um, and, you know, when we were, I grew up learning about, I mean, I grew up paddling with McEwen, McEwen taught me how to kayak. And from when I was, I mean, nine years old, he was telling us stories about the Sang Po and how that was going to be the biggest whitewater descent of all time. And he had read Kingdon Ward's book and he had a picture he had found in the National Geographic taken in the 50s in the Brahmaputra going upstream. And it was during an extreme drought and he felt like there was, you know, 10,000 CFS in that river at some point down there or uh, completely it was a river that was very very low and he was like there is a way to do that gorge if i could see the river that low again and well, uh, i i totally agree uh, you know and 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 you know hence why i i it's pretty wild man uh this year uh 2022 january 20th i turned 50 years old and that is the day that i flew to the Sang Po, and that will be our 20-year anniversary of God, the Sang Po expedition been 20 in 2002. Um, yeah, 20 God, years. What the hell is happening? Um, and so, uh, I when when we flew over, we flew over in the dead of winter. I was like, I'll right. I'll I'll bear the winter conditions yeah. Uh, for the lowest possible flow, and and it was the single biggest um, sort of uh, obstacle. I mean, there were two huge obstacles outside of the million other things, but the two biggest obstacles, river-wise, was flow and getting over the Cinchin Law in the dead of winter. Um, you know, those two things were 
you know, we weren't sure we could get up over that pass. And, and we got super lucky. Both, uh, we had the driest winter on record in 15 years. We had, um, we had gotten to the Cinchin Law. We made it up over the Cinchin Law. And that next day, it rained for two days straight and probably snowed three feet. Um, we barely made it over that pass. Uh, um, you know, followed by it, it, had, it had rained and snowed the next day. Uh, um, and we had gotten below the snow line. And, and we had pushed and gone up and over in one day. Describe um, to our listeners absolutely. the importance of that portage over that pass. Well, it, it, it actually, oh man, um, it's, <laughs> it's tricky because, uh, we knew the eight miles from rainbow falls to the confluence was completely off the scale. We had always used the stikine as the, um, uh, uh, sort of, we used that as the, the, the perfect specimen. It was like sticking 60 feet a mile, 10, 15,000 CFS. Site Z mile, 120 foot mile. We always felt like it was runnable. Okay, so if stuff got to be 120 feet a mile on, this, on the Sangpo, there was, a, there was room. And if there was 10,000 CFS, boom, we could maybe move around in there. Um, the stretch from the northeast corridor to Clear Creek. Now, this is the last stretch, you know, before you get to the porridge to walk over the Cinchin Law. It goes, it starts out like it pay, you know, there's a 60-foot mile there. And then you get down below Gala and you get into the 80-foot-per-mile stuff. And then you get into the 120 stuff. And then you get into the northeast corridor and then the stretch right above Clear Creek, which is right above Rainbow Falls, you're at 200 feet per mile. You know, so 200 feet per mile, 10,000, 15,000 CFS. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, there's probably not much runnable in there. Um, and so flow was everything. And um, we had, I, I had heard a rumor. I got a, I, I don't know, I don't even, oh, it was at the Explorers Club. I was at the Explorers. Uh, uh, I had been connected through Les Guthman, who was the executive producer for Outside Television, and he had a connection at the Explorers Club, and he had heard of this guy in um, Minnesota who had snuck out of Russia and with all of the military-grade topographical maps. Um and he, I, I got his number somehow and I called him up and I was like, Hey, I'm looking for the Sangpo river. I'm looking for the Sangpo gorge. Do you have maps? And he's like, absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, so we get the maps and the maps are the, the most legit maps I've ever seen of the Himalayas hands down the map that we used for the Carnally was a handwritten map and it was so categorically wrong <laughs> that it basically Charlie had a meltdown once we got into the the, uh, the headwaters of the Carnally because nothing that the map had shown us was what was reality. I mean, we got into the upper Carnally and the walls grew like 15,000 feet on both sides. And we were just like, whoa, we just pushed this thing way too far. With the Russian maps, 
we were able to actually calculate, you know, the gradient, um, you know, and, and get a really good idea of, like what we were up against. Two months ago, I get another call from the executive producer from outside Les, and he's like, hey, man, I got this company. They're out of Seattle. They've got this uh, demilitarized satellite. It's called Iconis. I think we can get some images of the Sangpo. Now, this is like pre-Google. This is pre-anything that you, anything that was satellite imagery at that point was all military grade. Nobody could get their hands on it. I call these guys up. I'm like, hey, man, we're looking at doing this river. And they're like, yeah, absolutely, we can do it. And the guy sends me an email with an invoice, and he wants to do 20 images, and he wants uh, he wants $7,000 an image. He sends me an invoice for like $125,000. <laughs> and I was like, yo, man, we don't have $125,000 for 20 images. We'll just use these Russian maps and go blind. And uh, Rush, or, uh, Les was like, let me call him. And Les got us on the phone. We're like, hey, we're doing an NBC. We're doing an outside cover story. We're doing this. We're doing that. What do you think about doing a sponsorship deal? We'll push Iconis. And boom, cut the deal, man. And those guys took pictures for us. And so they went over there and uh, took the and, – and I'll never forget when I got the disc, man. I put the disc in the computer. It took oh, like a half, that would I be took the like sickest half an hour to unload. Because back in this day, it was like – you know, they were 500 meg images and like to, it, the computer froze like twice because they were, you know, like just you had to have a supercomputer to like bring these things up. And I remember sitting there and I opened up the thing and I was like, oh, my God, we can move around in there. And not only can we move around in there, there's there's space like we, we can there's like and and before I left, um. Auburn, California, I had a really good vibe that if I got to the put-in and we had a flow and cinch in law was, was, was doable, we had a really good shot at this thing. So did, a the, really did the pictures he sent you, were they similar flows that you had? Like, were they recent pictures? Oh, like how they, it's really, they, they, you know, what was so wild was that um, the Goloth had happened. So that was in between 97 and 2002. So, that was that was uh, no. I take that back. I take that back. The Goloth. Uh, no, the Goloth had not happened at that point. We got the images. This is in two thousand. The Goloth, I think, happened in two thousand one, late two thousand one, and we were two thousand two because everything was still intact. And then when the Goloth, a Goloth is a glacial land outburst flood, right? It's basically a landslide blocks the river. The river eventually goes back to its natural course. It happened on the same uh, Po Sang Po. Um, the locals there describe it as a 300 foot wall of water that came down the Po Sang Po, turned the corner and ripped out the entire bottom end of the Sang Po. Um, and so our, our Iconis maps didn't have the bottom end of the Sang Po. We only had the top end of the Sang Po. But this was the crazy part. We, I, Alan, you know, Alan Ellard, he he gets to um, to Auburn because I fly everybody in, and, and uh, he takes the Russian topos, and he sets the Iconis satellite images over the Russian topos, and they're perfect, absolutely perfect. 
And so we, boom, that was it. We had these Russian maps, we had the topos, and yep, that was the beginning of, of, of like really feeling confident that, you know, and modern technology just felt confident that we, if we got a flow, we were, and we were able, we were able to get to the put-in, which was a feat in itself. And I won't go into it too much because a lot of the book is, is the inner workings of what it took to pull that, pull that thing off. I mean, there was so many back, backyard, you know, deals and, and <laughs> yeah, just, just absolute fist fight to get in there. When we, uh, when we were planning our trip, Wick, Wick Walker, who let's say he, let's just say he worked for the State Department. Yeah. He, he, uh, he drove to Confluence and had, he, he's like, I need to show you something. I'm like, all right, you don't need to drive up here, but okay. He drives up and he goes into like our office at IR. It's like the first year IR is in existence. And uh, this is in Confluence, population 300. And he takes out this big wad of, of maps and he closes all the window shades before he opens them up. Like we're in confluence, man. There's no one, there's no one outside the windows here. Yeah, uh, but that's how that's how protective he, he was of these things. And you know, of course, he couldn't discuss where he got and where they came from. Or, but, yeah, you know, all yeah. all the trips we did before that, we did off of TPCs or ONCs, which was like big white spots. You know? Oh, up until up until <laughs> 2002. I mean, from 1990 for me all the way to 2002. I mean, uh, almost everything was in the dark. Yeah, everything was in the dark. Altitude thought not to exceed six thousand feet. That would be what <laughs> yeah. you had to go off of. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's the good old days. <laughs> so, man, there's so much to unpack right there in that story. Uh, <laughs> You're gonna have to wait for the book. <laughs> exactly. It's gonna unpack the whole thing. Yeah. I swear. It's I. I'm. Yeah, it's gonna. We're gonna unpack the whole thing on that, and and the Cardinale too, and 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 just the river exploration within the Himalayas. It's just uh, we. I I hope to unpack as much of that. You know, it's the. It's funny because the you know early explorers of of the Himalayas. It's all British. You know, the Brits own the Himalayas. Um, you know, all the early stuff. You know, the Mick Hopkinsons and the Dave Mambies and the Jerry Moffats and and. The green slime, Peter Knowles, and all those guys, you know, those guys um, were savage. I mean, they're just, you know, middle of nowhere, 50-hour bus rides, hiking into stuff, and, yeah, just disappearing for months and months on end. You know, for, for four or five years there, even before I made my first film, I, I would go over and, like, I'd get done in Grand Canyon, and then I would go over in, like, September, and I would stay until December, and, you know, the only communication I had home was a fax machine and, and a phone call. And, you know, there was no, 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 nothing. You just disappear and just, you know, do savage bus rides and, 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 and go run rivers. And, 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 and there was a guidebook for us back in those days, too. You know, David and Peter Knowles had collaborated on a Nepal Whitewater guidebook, and, and that was useful um, back in those days. And so we were able to cruise around with that thing and kind of figure some stuff out. But, Will the Sagpo get run top to bottom, ever? Well, uh, I and how do you do it? If, if they build a dam, you know what I mean? You're talking 300 feet a mile. And yeah. in the canyon below Rainbow Falls and, and Hidden Falls is... It's, it's very scoured. It's, <laughs> and there's yeah. no room to move around in there. I mean, you go and look at the satellite images, and there's just no room to move around in there. 
Yeah. So I mean, it, it was a dam build above it, and and you know there was a couple thousand CFS coming out the bottom of that thing, and they were diverting everything over to the Yellow River, which is something they've talked about doing. Mm-hmm. Um, then at that point, you know, they, there absolutely could be a way to do it. And 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 even if you didn't do that stretch, you know, um, you know, there's 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 been this, um, uh, you know we didn't finish the expedition sort of thing. You know what I mean? And and I kind of look at it like the section that we did is kind of like Royal Gorge. And what's left on the Sangpo is the lower end of the, it's, it's kind of like Generation and Giant Gap in that it's in the foothills at that point. You're out on the backside of, of Namchi Barwa and Jalapuri at that point, where we stopped kayaking at the apex of the Great Bend um, you know, there is one other gorge, the Paiute Gorge, and then there's one other gorge below that. This is a Luku Gorge. Um, could the kids go in there and run that and pull that shit off? Absolutely. I, I mean, we've always we've always thought that there was a possibility, and 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 you know, truth be told, here the last um, you know when I got back from the Indus, I made uh, the last two years I made a full court press to try to get back in there, and um, yeah, to no avail. Just it's it's so locked down right now, and the problem with it is is that the the politicians are being bought out by mining companies and dam engineer firms, and the money's too grand, and they don't want to mess with something that's going to potentially um, uh, make them lose face because everything in China is about saving face, and anytime you put your Put, put you know your stamp on you know uh, and it takes three it takes three or four it takes four different sort of uh, it takes four different permissions you need a local permission you need a tourist visa you need military and then you need the CCC uh, CCP I think you got that yeah and so uh, and so you know I got super lucky in that you know on our trip in um, 2002 um, I was working with this woman in Tibet who had connections politically in Beijing, and she turned me on to the Academy of Sciences in Beijing. The head of the Academy of Sciences went to uh, school, grew up with a military general in the Chinese military. So there was this whole transaction that happened with me flying to Beijing, me cutting a deal with the Academy of Sciences, basically telling them that we were going in as a um, a uh, an expedition to explore the sort of botany, geology sort of thing. And, oh, we need to kayak to get to some of these places. That's kind of how we sold it to the Academy of Sciences. And then I straight up bought off a military general to get us a stamp to get in there without sight. How that went down. Dude, I've, once yeah. we got that stamp, then it was a fist fight to basically get from Lhasa to the put-in. Every single town we, we, we drove through, I was basically in a back room paying local officials off. In hindsight, Scott, do you think there was a way for you to do that trip light and right without all the porter support and all that kind of thing like knowing what you know now you got the permits um, you got the ability to do it could you have yeah i i i mean 
The problem is the length, right? Even when I, even this, this last uh, couple years when I, you know, trying to, you know, I, I went down and I mapped out the entire lower end of the river. And then I went day by day as to how many days I think it would take to run the lower Canyon. And I think I had us doing it some, t- I, I think we could do it in like 10 to 14 days, but I gave us 20 days. So I was, I was basically, you know, roughly. So it really just comes down to, and, and this was really difficult for the, 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 the 2002 expedition is like, look, you're burning 3,000 calories, 4,000 calories a day, right? And you're, you have to eat. And so like I, we all jumped on the scale before we went on, on the Sangpo expedition. And I forget who lost the most weight, but I think Willie lost like 35 pounds. I was like 160. I came home weighing like 137. My face was caved in. Um, you know, we just weren't able to eat enough. So I think, you know, there, if there was a way to food cash, you know, if you did, maybe, you, you know, maybe you hire out a helicopter and you do food caches and, you know, so you can carry, you know, five days worth of food. But if you're loading your boat up with 10, 15 days worth of food, and then, you know, you're dropping in there and, and you're, you know, running that stuff in super heavy boats. Yeah, I think the kids could be able to go in there and and, and knock a huge percentage of it out. No doubt about it. Um, but if they were in light kayaks, you know, and they were going in there to stunt to see what could actually be done in a kayak, big water wise, that's a different vibe. You know, we were in there surviving. Yeah. Um, you know, when we were on the Indus, what makes the Indus so unbelievable is the fact that there's a road right by it. So you're able, you know, you're at either point, you're either, you can be in Gilgit or Skardu in a certain amount of time, or you can be in Gilgit. And both of those places have airports and, you know, you're running light kayaks. You're able to get away with, you know, so much. Um, you're able to get away with so much um, in, in a lighter boat. So yes. And yes, you know, you could, you know, I know that Stukesbury has, you know, he's been gunning for that thing ever since we got off of it. Um, you know, and I'd love nothing more in the whole world to share that place with him or, or anybody for that matter to get back in there. It's unbelievable to me that it, we're 20 years out from, from this trip and, and, and nobody else has been, been able to get, get back in there to go do that thing. Because I still, you know, I think it's every bit as big as, as anything on the Indus. I think our film um, just doesn't do it justice. I mean, to the trained eye, you can kind of see what's going on in there. And, and you can look at some of the stills and kind of see what's going on in there. But once you, you, you start sitting on 100 feet per mile, 200 feet per mile with 10, 15,000 CFS, it's just, you know, it's, it's yeah. Yeah, you're it's, not, and you guys weren't charging batteries, flying drones, you know, all the things that you can do no, when you got No, out. I mean, now, I mean, you know, one of the things that we had talked about, Steve, Steve was, you know, super fired up to take one of those like parasailer things with a motor. And, he, you know, there was talk of like, you know, bringing that thing and flying down it with, with that, you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there, there's been a lot. And, and there were, you know, when I was there in 97, there were two helicopters that were available in Bayou. And we went to the, we went to the airport to actually with Curry and tried to potentially rent the helicopter. We got there 
And, you know, because we had heard that they were there, we got there and something like a, a six months before we had gotten there, the two helicopters uh, over the Ascension uh, Law or to the to the right of the Ascension Law, I forget the name of the pass that goes over to, to Madog. Madog is the, the town just before the confluence or just before the border of India. Um, they had collided and blown up. And so the, the two helicopters that we that, you know, that we were hoping to maybe rent out. Um, had collided and blown up on the pass over to Madog. And so, boom, that was out of the equation at that point. And so then it was like, yeah, but, you know, absolutely with the drones. And, you know, the, the other thing that's really sad that's going on there right now is there's two, 200 plus hydroelectric projects in the, in the, in the eastern corner of Tibet. That's, they're, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna destroy the whole place, man. There, there, there's rumors now that are talking about, and I keep going back and forth with Chris Jones a little bit online about it, you know, like there, there's media coming out that they're going to build one right at the bottom there at Madog and the infrastructure. This is another thing from Godom, which is where we stopped and walked up to the confluence and we didn't run the Luku or the uh, Paiu Gorge that stretched from Godom down to the border. You go down about 20 miles, and a new road comes down, and the bottom end of the same pot is roadside. What? Yeah. It's just roadside. a matter of time before they blast the road and that whole thing, dude. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we were told when we were there that they were, you know, because they were kicking all the locals out um, when we were there. They were forcing them to go to Bayou, and we were told that they were turning it into a national park and, and by the locals. That's kind of what the word on the street was when we were in there. Um, but, you know, hint, you know, looking back now, the, you know, the idea of building a dam at, you know, at, at Madog and, you know, initially what they wanted to do was divert the river around Namchi Barwa and then tunnel it to Madog and basically dry out the entire Great Bend and leave nothing but the, nothing but the Po Sang Po. And, and then they've got dams proposed on the Po Sang Po all the way to the top. So, I mean, there's, it's just, and, and that's, that's, that's the Himalayas. That's the, that's, that's all of the Himalayas. I mean, everything in Nepal has been, you know, the Carnali is the last free flowing liver left in, 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 in Nepal. And that thing is, is got several dam projects pushing and India, same thing. I mean, the Sutledge, if you ever saw the Sutledge footage that we did in one of the kayak movies back in the day that they, they, you know, we squeezed through there right as they were finishing up a reservoir on that thing. So, yeah, Rush, super sad. Rush, what was your favorite Scott Lindgren DV, uh, VHS movie? Uh, I was, I was, I liked Thirst. That was, that was my favorite. I liked the. Uh, there was, a, there's a shot of. I don't think it's actually Steve Fisher. I always thought it was, but um, it's, there's someone freewheeling Spirit, and I used to watch that over and over again. Just that one clip. Just like rewind, rewind, rewind. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I was hooked on all the, all the old movies, you know? Um, yeah, all of them. Dude, and I've I, watched them a lot more times while making this movie. Oh my God. <laughs> it's gotta be sick. I bet you have to. Are you guys, three, I mean, are you guys still 300, friends? 300 hours of archival, 300. Yeah. Is a lot. So many. I feel so bad for you, bud. <laughs> yeah. And most of it's like, just like, it's most of it's so bad too. Like just, you know, whatever. Some of the play boating stuff, you're just like, really, I'm going through all this, but, um, yeah. <laughs> 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 it's, it felt just as bad shooting it, but I was never. 
Uh, if anybody goes through all my old material, it'll be the same. same <laughs> so out to lunch, just sending to hold a camera while somebody would, yeah. yeah. Especially the play building stuff. I struggled with that so much. Are, are you guys still friends? <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, no, totally. We actually... We actually are, um, <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> Dude, I had. Uh, no, I'm not. I mean, like, I think we had one hot moment throughout the entire process, and then outside of that, like, you know, uh, it's been unbelievable. Like the just this whole thing and the way that it worked out, just with the the financing and all the different conversations and deals and the footage and everything. It's just, it, the wind was at our back, um, through this thing. Cause, uh, we multiple occasions where we were over budget or couldn't find something or we're struggling with something and, and just, you know, running into these roadblocks and then it would just kind of open up for us a little bit. And, um, you know, I call that the flow of life and it's amazing when you're in the flow of life and things are, things are flowing and, and, uh, and yeah, just super, super grateful for the, for the process and, and the effort that Rush put into it. And, and, and one of the, I think the hardest things for me was, was, you know, a lot of people have asked me, you know, my brother in particular, you know, is really pushing me because when the first edits were coming out and stuff, you know, I've made so many films in my life and, you know, he's like, you know, why aren't you in there? Like, editing and 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 getting involved in 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 the process of making this film and i was like bud i don't want to make a movie about myself and i trust this kid and i'm just gonna let go and let this let it just evolve into whatever it is and and let it be you know and and i tried i mean i stayed uh, i don't maybe rush can attest to this but I, I i stayed at a distance from the film i, um, I, didn't, I didn't i didn't let scott watch anything actually like the whole, the whole process. Um, yeah, he, he, I got to see, my first cut was what, two years in? The first yeah. time I got to see the film was yep. probably like two years in. It was the first cut. Yeah, and I, I, didn't, I didn't even want to show it to, to you then. No. <laughs> I was like, hey, bud, you might want to show me the movie. I might be able to help you out with these things. And he, he was not even ready to show me the film then. And then, and then, um, and then it actually worked out. It, it worked out because it, it just really, you know, that's when, you know, Thayer came in. That's when Trish was brought into the film. That's when, you know, the 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 real human side of stuff started to kind of come out more. And it started to become a more broader audience film is when, when Rush kind of let go of it at that point and let other people, you know, in on, in on the process. And it's pretty wild, man. We got some pretty amazing feedback from from people. A lot of really good feedback, but we got some pretty amazing feedback that's, that's from always some so posts, fun. earlier cuts and stuff. Some like, yeah, just like my, yeah. So yeah, just the whole setting your ego aside and and trying to look through their ego when they're you know giving feedback and and trying to take nuggets and 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 make a better film. You know that's that that takes a lot of humility and and rush navigated that like a gangster it was amazing got scars from that rush yeah i'm, a, yeah. I'm i've got some i've got some ptsd <laughs> from this film yeah <laughs> it's a it's a it's a process but i mean it's it's good man i learned a lot and you know i feel like i'll definitely be more prepared the next well if there is a next time for one of these things um 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Grace movie. Yeah. Oh my god. We have some LVM footage you can go through. Hammer, <laughs> Hammer Factor <laughs> in that movie. LVM footage. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I wore I out a copy of Liquid Lifestyles. Literally broke the tape. I watched it so many times, Damn. dude. Like, literally, it drugged for a while, and eventually, like, the audio was off from the video, and it gets slow in places, and then finally it fucking snapped. <laughs> I, got, I got a backup copy of that somewhere. I, actually, I might have You got it online, that. dude. I watch it all yeah, the time. I had my kids watch it the other day. I ask if all these old movies are available. They're anymore. on my Vimeo. I got most of them. Here, here's the tragedy uh, of all of the films. I don't have the the master copy to Burning Time. I just have a DVD copy. Um, it's lost on a hard drive, so uh, that that one kind of burns a little bit. But all the other ones, I actually have mastered out to tape, and 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 I'll end up putting the Burning Time the DVD. I'll digitize that and put that thing up at, at some point as well. But yeah, okay. so. So funny how to dive into the archives. I'll, I'll put a link yeah, to that on the show. And we're it's all digitized now, so it's actually just a matter of yeah, going back and and looking through some of that stuff. It's been this has been a cool conversation because I feel like you know the, the movie is awesome, and I like I appreciate like the human side of it. And if that's the movie you guys are making, but like, I think there's this like inevitable reaction as a kayaker where you're like, wait, wait, I want to like, you know, like get into the, like the kayaking details, you know, and like, I'm glad that we're getting the chance to do that now. It's good. Yeah, um, man. I was Rush and I's biggest concern or, you know, I, I don't, I can't speak for Rush, but we've talked about it at length. You know, it, it's, 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 it, the film, you know, if kayaking is the vehicle, you know, it, it's just the vehicle. It's and, like it has to be about something bigger than kayaking. Yeah. But and, if you're a kayaker, there's nothing. But yeah, if kayaking. you're, if you know, you're 21 years old and you're on, you know, you're <laughs> watching Dane Jackson go kayaking every day, you know, um, you're probably not going to get your fix in this film. You know, uh, my six-year-old wanted more cobra flips. That was his only criticism. <laughs> <laughs> cobra flips. He's like more cobra flips. Scott, I have no desire to learn how to cobra flip. I'm still working on my uh, kick flips. <laughs> you almost had a little cobra flip, but Scott's dropped, but you, you pulled it together. Oh my god. <laughs> well, I want to talk about cool. that, but I know I shouldn't talk about that. But like. Well, I mean, we could talk about Royal Gorge a little bit. I mean, that's that. I don't mind, um, you know, the that. Aside from Scott's drop, it was more like for me. I I had mentioned to Rush that like I really wanted to flush, you know, because when I ran, when we did the first descent of Royal, I ran Heath one, Rattlesnake, and my drop on the on the first descent, and I left Heath two. So Heath two and Wabina were the two that were left undone for me. Um, and so, you know, I just really wanted to go back in there and, and, and flush. And so, but man, I'm, I'm not a young kid and I just don't have the dynamic range to throw, uh, the bottom end of my boat on the lip on the entrance to, uh, Scott's drop. And, and, and swing on a left stroke and hurl myself. And more importantly, I was worried about the impact of that top, uh, of the top drop. Uh, Evan Moore had gone uh, a few days before and Johnny Chase, those guys had gone like the week before we had, we, we had gone. And like, you listen to Evan hit and he, he was like, 
sore for like four days after that. Um, he, you could hear the echo through the canyon when he hit. It was so freaking loud. And I just knew that I couldn't take a hit like that. I would just, I would just like crumble. And so I just went super old school with it. And I went the way that I originally ran it. I went on a righty and, and I pulled with a righty and, um, you know, the OG, if you get it out away from it, it's great. But if you land in it, it gets a little, it can get a little tricky. And, um, I just didn't get far enough out from it. And it, it, was, and it, it was a sick line though. I gotta give you props. Like, I thought you had a actually pretty sick line on, on the top, top drop. It I didn't kinda happen. I it just kind of happened to flip you. That was all, you know. God. All right, so it's I, out in the open now. We can talk about that. That was a clutch roll. That was the most clutch shit. I could hear Rush in the helicopter. Roll, motherfucker, roll. I was saying that in my house in front of my kids, dude. I was like cussing in front of them. Like, God damn, shut up. You know? So someone in, someone in one of the audience uh, asked us if that was we put that in for dramatization. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, like, did you cue that up and we're like, yeah. oh my god, you gotta go sit in that place and see yeah. how like, all right, crazy. All right, Scott, we're gonna need you to flip right now and <laughs> ham this one up a little bit. Jeez, <laughs> I was so grateful that I came out the bottom of that thing in one piece. I was so sore at that point too. I was like, oh my god, I still got Wabina, and um. Rush gave me like the best advice ever. He's like, dude, just like run the left side of Wabina. Just like stay on the left side. And um, I had the hardest hit that I took was actually on Rattlesnake. Rattlesnake. I took a hard hit there too. Man, Rattlesnake literally almost concussed me. <laughs> and um, I was just like super sore from that. And then um, got to the bottom of Scott's and then got to Wabina. And then Rush was like, dude, just – I asked him. I was like, dude, what do you think you know, is the best? He's like, run the left side. It's way softer on that left side. And, um, you know, Galen and Annual just, you know, God, those guys are insane. And, uh, yeah, I just went off the left side and it was pillows over there, man. I got felt so lucky and managed to hit my hand roll at the bottom and – felt so glorious at that moment it was like oh my god i spent my entire adult life living along the north fork of the america and that place is in my heart and soul and i love that river so much and to be at the bottom of that thing in one piece at 40 i think it was 47 or 48 years old at that point in the game so thankful man so thankful dude what's your experience scott like when you're in your 20s, you're paddling with your peers, age peers. And then when you're in your 30s, there's less people your age. and You're paddling with a little bit of a younger group. By the time you get to your 40s, I mean, you're sitting around and you're like looking with a bunch of kids. You're oh, like, man. what the hell is going on here, dude? Well, it's like, so funny. You know, it, it was so easy when we were kids because we were all, you know, like when Willie, when the band was together in, in, in the 20s and stuff and in in the run that we had. It's so, and, and Rush, is, Rush can speak to this too. You know, we had our circle and we could go anywhere in the world. And, 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 and after Chuck had passed, you know, there was this pivotal moment where do we walk away or, or do, we, do we continue doing what we're doing? Because at that point, I think in the course of like 10 months, we lost seven people and four were in the inner circle. And we're just like, 
you know, and, and you have guys like Charlie, Charlie Walbridge calling us out. Basically, you know, I had outside magazine. There was a quote in there from Lars Holbeck. If he lives to be 45, then we'll say he knew what he was doing. There was, um, you know, there was just this like whole, like sort of death vibe. It was crazy. You you had a little bit of a bullseye on your back during that time. A hundred percent. And, and, um, and when we, and, and, and once we kind of got over that, um, you know, we got to this point where Willie and I were just like, you know, uh, I will, I, I went and woke Willie up at like one o'clock in the morning drunk and we went out to Forest Hill Bridge and, um, I was like, you know, he was super angry, wasn't able to let go of it. You know, it was super heavy time. This is probably like six months out. And I was like, what are we going to do? man? We don't have anything else. This is our, this is I mean, everything that we've done, we're so set up. Like when Chuck passed, we had just done the second descent of the Middle Kings. And it was, we went to outdoor retailer. Two days later, Chuck passed. And we were on top of the world when we got off the Middle Kings. The Middle Kings was, we were set. Sponsorship money was rolling. We were set to start just going anywhere and everywhere to knock it off and then and then everyone starts dying around us and we were like we were just so lost and we spent that winter johnny and willie moved in with my brother on donner summit and we spent that winter on donner summit and um we skied and uh we just we just got to that point just like you know what what are we gonna do you know and and that's when the whole sort of what would Chuck want us to do? You know, at this point, it's like, would he want us to stop and walk away at this point, or, you know, do we, do we, do you, do do we have a spirit in the sky here? And I was like, we've got a spirit in the sky. This guy's, this guy's, this guy is at our back. He's pushing us, and he's felt. I mean, he still felt. Um, you know, when Chuck passed. Um, there was this moment where Johnny, Willie, Buffy, and Aaron were all there, and a blue heron went and landed on top of the rock that that Chuck went under, and they had to paddle out, and that blue heron basically led them down the river, and um, every time I see a blue heron, I think of 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 him, you know, and and he was our driving force. I mean, he was the one. I mean, pound for pound. I think we all felt he was probably, if not the best, the best kayaker in the world at that time, all around kayaker in the world. He made the U.S. freestyle team. He was sending it harder than anybody. He was definitely the dominant personality on on the river trip. His his uh, his presence on the Middle Kings was so next level. I mean, he led that entire thing um, and didn't blink. Um, and so once we kind of got over that um, hump, it was just like uh, that. We're just we just became numb at that point. We were just like the only thing we want to do is just open up the maps and find the biggest, baddest rivers in the world and just send it as hard as we possibly can. And that's exactly what we did. What the crew? Like, you know, you had your posse, you had your crew. Yeah. Like, so back to your original question. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt no, you. No, no, no. Uh, 
yeah, sorry, back to your initial question. So when that when the crew started to, you know, at that point, Fisher came in and Fisher and I had developed a relationship and, and I became super close with Fisher. I mean, we I spent eight years in Africa with him, you know, and and we knocked off a lot of stuff. And, and Fisher actually convinced me that surfing big waves was was the future of freestyle kayaking because up until that point i wasn't convinced that freestyle kayaking had a place in 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 in, other than introducing people to rivers um you know i i didn't like the image of freestyle kayaking at all i thought it was terrible um i thought it was ice skating um and i really liked what fisher was doing with alex nicks and nico chasing on the zambezi and, you know, when Fisher came on the St. Poe, we had hung out. He had come and lived with me. And, and and so I had one community, and then we had shifted to the Fisher sort of reign. And then when that all started to change, because then it became me organizing money, me holding space, and helping a kid get to a space to where I felt comfortable filming him stunting in front of a camera. And that drains your soul. Um, and you're not necessarily doing it for the right things at that point. And that wore on me. Um, and, and, and the connection wasn't there like it was um, when I was doing it with the people that were closest to me um, and, and how it started out. And when I got back in my kayak, um, the greatest gift ever was Rush and Annual and uh, Tyler and Galen and all of these kids. Um, They didn't push me away. They let me sit behind them and get my... uh, get it back and 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 look there's you can you can go out there and you can start running rivers on your own or you can do it with people that are at your level and but there's there's nothing like sitting behind an annual or a dane or a geared or and and following them day in and day out on a river um the nuances and the the and, and, and at this point, I took my ego out of the game. I was, I was learning from them. You know, there was, there was nothing that, you know, I, I could show up emotionally for them and I can support them in ways that they hadn't been supported that way. But technically, kayaking wise, they, they were so far ahead. And for me to get that back, I needed them more than they needed me. And the fact that they even gave me the time to, to let them, to let me, you know, sit behind them and, and get that back. I mean, and there's several occasions where Annual's like, dude, you're just not fucking paddling hard enough, or, you know, you're not, you're not balanced or, uh, you're doing this wrong or you're doing, and, and, and I can openly go and ask like, dude, what am I doing wrong? You know, or what did I do wrong? And, um, that just brought us all closer together. Cause I, you know, I wasn't showing up with my past, right? If, if you show up with your past, that's your ego. That's not being present, right? And I wanted to be present. I didn't want to show up with my past. My past is the past. That has nothing to do with who I am now. And I just, um, and my accolades 
that's not my identity. That's not my intellect, right? My intellect is my heart. And so I just wanted to show up with my heart and, you know, I didn't get ostracized for it, which is something that I would have done when I was their age. It's a big statement. Yeah, so, I think the movie, the movie kind of works a little bit with that, a little bit as well, which I found really interesting. Yeah. You know, yeah. especially as, as you get older and, you know, I'm 53 and still trying to hang in there, you know, but it's. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. <laughs> you got to set something aside. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky. The hardest part for me was like, I, I just told myself, like, look, I, there's no way that I was going to be able to get in shape to go do the Indus or the Stikin for that matter, uh, unless I could get to a space to where I felt like it was second nature again. You know, I wanted to get to that space to where, you know, the, the whole, like, I think it's deceptive, you know, like if you're running, uh, something that, you know, that you have wired, like it's like Grace going and doing the green, like it's me going and doing the South U, but I, know every single position that my knee is in. I know everything that every foot that I push on when I make moves at all the different levels. But my reactive kayaking is what I lost the most. And that's what took the longest to get back. Where you're showing up and you're running something that you don't know and you're reactively successfully navigating without a hitch and, and, and making that second nature. And I think that that a lot of people get um, um, they get confused as to like separating those two things. Um, and and my reactive kayaking was terrible, um, and and my memory is terrible. As it, you know, I always I've never really been great at memorizing runs in general. I always use that. I always used to say I used to use it as an advantage a lot of times because it, I always felt like reactive kayaking was so important. Because I always felt like, you know, plan A is great, but when you're falling apart in plan B, that's terrible, right? So you wanna you wanna you wanna be able to take plan A and react as well as you are in plan A is with, with plan B and plan C. And and a lot of people they, they let their ego and their intellect get in the way there and and that that you know it becomes deceptive. And and I was I was hyper aware of that when I got back in a kayak. I, I knew that I needed to make it separate, second nature. How'd you get it back? I just swam a lot. <laughs> I sat behind annual. I sat behind Russ. I sat behind, you know, I just started kayaking with kids that were doing it every single day that were half my age, you know? Yeah, uh, and, and that's basically, you know, I still, I, I you know, just spent, uh, two weeks in Leavenworth on the on the Tom Water with Willie and you know paddled with uh, with Dane for several days. Tyler came up, paddled with him, and paddled with Evan for two weeks. And it's just such a different vibe when you can sit behind the kids and and just absorb. And the the truth is that he just got an OG and that was it. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. It. <laughs> so I came out when I came out to the goals like two years ago. Uh, hands down. The first day in the water, like second in the water, I was paddling with like Isaac Levinson and Tyler Brought and Geltman. And I was like, fuck, 
you know, and I kind of tantrum. I just threw like a tantrum. You know what I mean? And I'm like, fuck kayaking. I'm fucking done. <laughs> you know? And it took me like two years before I sort of like, you know, really just hating myself that I wasn't kayak. Because I feel like I'm a What else do I have? You know, I mean, besides, of course, my family and business. But other than that, my personality has been driven around kayaking. You know, I mean, I've kayaked since I was nine years old. It's your identity. It really is, you know? Yeah. For, and, and the people I hang out with are kayakers. And I'm just yeah. sitting there staring at the floor where they're talking about kayaking. You know what I mean? And that was that was me. And, you know, finally, I'm like, fuck it. I got to figure this out. You know, and so I just started following people, which I would never do. You know, so we started running a little white. I'd be like on Max Blackburn's ass, like four inches off his off his hull, or stern, just watching every single thing he did. And as humiliating as it was, and for me, it really was. I was like, I have to eat crow and do this, you know. And yeah. thankfully, I feel like I got the I got an OG finally. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and my kid came back from world class and he was like he was like we're gonna go kayaking and i'm like all right let's fuck, let's do it and so that's been a huge part as well but what grace said is true earlier though you know like i look at the people i used to paddle with 20 years ago and i'm like the last guy standing uh, you know like two of us yeah. you know or three I mean, of us willie willie's still out there sending it he's awesome i love following that guy down the river so much and yeah so grateful that he's still in a kayak, but yeah, you're absolutely right. There's just not many, many of us left, you know, and, yeah. and, and I'm, yeah. So I, I mean, I feel like I got such an incredible second chance, you know, especially with my tumor and, and, um, you know, everything that, that went on with that and, 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 uh, just, yeah, my relationship with the river is so, uh, it's it's so amazing. It's so much better um, at this point in my life. Um, and do you think? I mean, do you think your cancer has changed? I mean, is that is that just incidental, or has that been changing well, direction? Well, really, you know, I I don't want to upset anybody by this, but you know, I, I I've said this openly multiple times. You know, I I got to a point. I mean, you can imagine if you've got like an egg or, you know, a, a baseball in your head, how that can mess with with just your thoughts and your your being as a whole, you know, and, um, you know, I think my tumor was in full swing probably just after the same pose when they're thinking that it started. Um, and so, uh, you know, I would never blame anything on it, but I definitely feel like it, propelled me to a place to where I could actually, um, once I realized that my tumor was not a weakness and that my fight with my tumor was a strength, right? That changed my perspective on everything because up until that point, my ego and my intellect and the idea that I could control everything had been wiped away in one swing. It was like, if I can't control this thing in my head, what do I actually have control of? I've got control of nothing. I've never had control of anything. And then I looked at the river and I was like, I've never, the only thing I ever had respect for was the river because it was this thing that was wild 
and changing and free flowing. And it was the only place that I felt at peace. Um, it's the thing that saved my life. I was on a trajectory as a kid that was not good. And every time something became difficult or hard, I would just run to the river. And once I was able to take that out of the way, once I had awareness of my ego and my intellect, and I was able to actually ask for help, that changed everything for me. It changed my trajectory with everything. I just stopped controlling. I would just show up. I would give it 100%. If it didn't work out, so be it. Um, and yeah, and I still have a brain tumor and it's still growing. And um, no matter how hard I try to fight it and I'm trying pretty fucking hard, it doesn't mean that it's going to go away. So, you know, uh, why would I try to control anything at this point in my life? Yeah, that's a perspective. You, I mean, it's a perspective shift. I mean, there's nothing, yeah. nothing you can go on. I mean, yeah. oh God, I want to get into the conversation that we had when we first talked about your tumor. And when all of yeah. that stuff happened, a lot of it is covered in the film, so I don't want to get too in-depth on it. Um, it's a, that's a can of worms that's hard to get into without um, talking yeah. too much about it. But real quick, how did you come to go to the doctor and find out that this all happened? Like, how did you know that you had this, this oh, thing Oh, I, I had... Um, I had... Uh... I started getting, um, I thought I had this sinus infection and I went down and, um, I can tell the story cause it's not really in the film, but, uh, I went down to this uh, herbal shop and I got some Chinese herbs to try to help with the congestion. And I ended up, um, taking them and I, like three hours later, I end up getting this like triple vision, double vision headache. And I kind of like, not completely blackout, but I kind of have this like crazy migraine headache, and I what, took it. What year was this? What what what's the time? Uh, this is two thousand fourteen. Okay. Yeah, fourteen. Yeah, because I think I had the surgery February third, two thousand fifteen. So this is uh, December. This is Christmas Day, fourteen. Right. This happens. Six days later, New Year's. Go out have dinner with my family, come back, I'm getting ready to go out and I get another headache and I have a, a triple vision knockout headache where I woke up on the ground and I was like, that's crazy. That's super weird. And, um, two days later I went in and saw the doctor and he's like, we need to take a picture. And I wasn't halfway home and he told me to turn around and come back. And his thing was like, we got to talk or you need to get this no. taken care of right away or. No. Uh, oh yeah. It went straight into, you know, we, you know, he put me in touch and this is a crazy story actually, man. Like, um, I, I, I instantly go into mode of like, okay, I got to find the best neurosurgeon in the world. 
So I basically go and find the two guys that have done the procedure, uh, that invented the procedure. One guy was out of UCSF and the other guy was at John Hopkins. And, um, I, Kaiser, I was with Kaiser Permanente, which is like, um, HMO healthcare program. It wasn't like, you know, and they had just developed a new neuro department. And I was like, I'm going to walk into this meeting with this neuro guy and I'm going to ask for a transfer to UCSF because I've, I've already got the doctor that I want to, that I want to go with. And I get the doctor's name that I'm going to go see this guy named uh, Dr. Brian Gian. And, um, I do a little bit of research and I see that he had done his internship, um, at UCSF in San Francisco. I was like, Oh, that's interesting, you know? And so, but for me to go to SF, I needed his signature to get pushed because I had a feeling that they weren't going to be able to do the procedure. I walk into this room and he starts telling me how he's going to pull this thing out of my head. And I was just like, you know, wait a minute, you know, we need to have a talk about who you are and what you are. And so I asked him, I was like, where, you know, where are you, you know, where are you trained? Yada, yada, yada. And he's like, um, I've worked under McDermott at UCSF in San Francisco. He's the guy that invented the procedure. He had been doing all of his surgeries for the last three years. Um, and Kaiser had basically caught wind of him and stole him out of UCSF to set up a program at uh, in Sacramento. And this guy was 37 years old. He was younger than I was. He basically had a dream when he was seven that he was going to be a neurosurgeon, went straight through. He was like the Doogie Howser of, of neuro. And um, he turned around and he asked me, he's like, hey, um, what do you, you know, what about you? What do you do? And I said, yeah, I'm a washed up professional athlete gone filmmaker. And he's like, you're a kayaker, right? And... Um, Hang on one second here. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> the dog was forcibly ejected from the interview. <laughs> my, my girlfriend's dog just came. And he's like, you're, I was like, yeah, I'm a washed up professional kayaker or, or washed up professional kayaker gone filmmaker. Uh, or I said, washed up professional athlete gone filmmaker. And he's like, you're a kayaker, right? And I was like, yeah, how do you know that? And he's like, do you know Jason Hale? And I was like, oh, God. What do you know Jason Hale? And he was like, well, he's my neuro nurse in San Francisco for the last four years. And I was like, hold, please. And I walked out the door and I called Hale. And I was like, Hale, uh, I got to ask you something. And he's like, what's going on? And I was like, I'm, I'm at... I'm at a neurosurgeon's office right now and I'm at this guy, Dr. Brian Gian's office. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing in that office? And I was like, but I got to bring to him. And he's like, he's your guy. <laughs> I was like, Oh my God. Uh, and, and, and then that was it, man. I was like, all right, kid, let's get it on. And, uh, and he was like, he was, he, and so it's so funny, man. I, I go into the surgery and Willie and Johnny are there with me. My family's with me. I open up the doors. I walk in. I'm, 
and and the nurse says, okay, this is kisses and goodbyes. I go in, I sit on the gurney, I'm hanging out, and Dr. Gian comes in and he, you know, he I had been sitting there for like an hour, which is like the longest hour of my life, and and he's like, uh, he's like, are you ready? And I was like, what do you mean? Am I ready? I was like, are you ready? Did you smoke a little weed last night, dog? Drink a little bit. Like, come on, you can tell me. It's okay, bud. And, and, and he started dying because he, he's not, I mean, these guys are used to playing God. Everyone's just like, yes, sir, no, sir. And all of a sudden I'm asking if he had a good night's sleep or if he had a little too much to drink last night. You sleep a day's uh, in or whatever. Oh, man, it was, awesome. it was We're still super, super close. He's actually coming to the film premiere in Auburn uh, on uh, August 7th. Um, he's he's going to come up with his wife and stuff, and we still communicate and, and are really close and stuff like that. I'm so grateful for him. And, yeah, they, they, they pulled out about 70, 75%, and the other 25, 30% is wrapped around my right carotid artery, which is um, – is, uh, not really. You need awkward. that, right? The carotid artery. <laughs> it's important. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just making sure. <laughs> That's a trick. You know, they, people have always said, you know, like, well, what's, like, what are you worried? You know, like, what scares you? And I was like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, a, like, I'm not afraid. Like, I've never been afraid of going to the other side. Um, I mean, you I, first of all, you were on the Indus with a Snapdragon skirt. No disrespect to Snapdragon. But that's oh, Jesus. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm editing that I out. I fully respect what you're saying. <laughs> I love Rich. I, I, I just, I just didn't. John like, was in like, like rapt silence watching. <laughs> oh, my God. And, like, that, I was like, I, that I comes up with like hand. snap. Like, oh, dear. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I actually kind of agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought, Rush, you're the one that told me to buy that Snapdragon. <laughs> Oh heck no, dude! I've always I'm 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 IR IR skates for wait 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 wait. I don't know how I ended up with that. I don't. I instantly yeah. Well, apparently I ended up uh, yeah. I think some of the kids started making fun of me or something happened. I swam out of that thing or something, and then <laughs> I ended up. I'll give you a hard time. You were like, yeah, I'll <laughs> give you. It makes a fine product. Uh, you were like, yeah, I'll give you. I'd love to give you a spray skirt, man, but you got to come do this podcast. And I was like, all right, deal. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we got him on. That's how we got him on. <laughs> By the way, I'm due for a new spray skirt. I'm, I'm also really due for a new skirt right now. Man. Well, you and the rest of the planet, it's, it's <laughs> sticky wicked getting product out of Asia right now. I don't know if you guys have heard. Yeah, but we heard something about well, that. Let us know. Get write us an email. We're gonna figure it out. Damn. So. <sighs> <laughs> what a transition that is. So like, can we talk about getting, I mean, how much can we let it, can we talk about where the film is going to be distributed and kind of get into how okay. that, that took place? Well, is this public knowledge? Rush. Like, I think how, Rush is the man for this one. How, how do we do this, Rush? Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't like mention exactly where it's going to be, but I can say that it'll be available like pretty much, pretty much everywhere. Um, Pretty soon, actually. Yeah, like, uh, you know, in the next month or two, um, you'll be able to get it on pretty much every platform out there. And, uh, yeah, the distribution was, you know, it was a long, long journey. And, um, you know, as, as Scott kind of mentioned earlier, we did get a lot of feedback on this film. And, and uh, that was challenging at times because I think that, that the film that I kind of originally made almost a year and a half ago, two years ago, was really not quite the film that was going to, 
sort of be able to break into a more kind of mainstream market. And that's kind of always been the goal is to, to, you know, for me anyway, as a filmmaker, I guess like I've, I've made, I've made a lot of kayak porn flicks and those are awesome and, and have been really fun. But, uh, I think since doing, you know, Chasing Niagara, my last project, the goal was to do something else that was going to be sort of in that same, um, you know, uh, kind of vein, I guess. And so, uh, yeah, it took a lot of different different cuts and re-edits to get it to a point where we actually had a distributor um, that was interested in, in kind of putting it out there to to the world. So, um, yeah, you can expect it here here pretty pretty quick. We're going to do a couple small screenings, uh, just like local screenings, one here in Hood River on the 21st of August, and then one down in Auburn on the, the 7th of August. So if you're, uh, if you're around, you can buy, you can reserve the tickets for the Auburn one. Now it's actually getting pretty close to so over half the tickets have been sold. So that one will sell out and the Hood River one will too, probably. So yeah, you should, people should come on out if they're in those communities for sure. But we can't talk about where it's going to be distributed yeah no, unfortunately not yet yeah okay all right well i had some a lot of questions to dig down on that one but i'll like <laughs> hold those to the next time yeah uh it's i mean yeah no i, I it's contractually no but, it, but what i can say is that it's going to be announced really soon where it's going to be so um yep man dude well i mean i love the movie i mean it's hard for me you know i know a lot of the characters and you know, but I will say this, it was, I'm always going to like the film when like all your friends and acquaintances are in it, you know, it's going to, you're never going to not like it, but compliments to you, Rush and the editing team and the people who wrote the story, it was very easy to follow and connected. And that is the hardest part of making a film, in my opinion, is being able to seamlessly keep the viewer without them questioning, wait, now what happened there, you know, and whatever. And so it was just like super good the whole way through. I watched it with my wife. She loved it and she's not a kayaker. So. Oh, man. thanks man. That, me that means a lot, especially coming from, from you. Yeah, I'm a big, big fan of all your work. So too, much, man. But I'm so yeah. grateful, especially considering how much time and effort you have behind the computer yourself. I'm so yeah. grateful for the words, man. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I will also say grace too. You've always, been very supportive um i mean all the way back to the de Laverne days and all that but you know you guys were always helping me out with stuff and scott too you know so this is all kind of everything everything going out in the river runners trickle down from from the folks who kind of came before so shout out to you guys for for supporting the youths back in the day you know mm. yeah, whatever i mean it's kind of still going on <laughs> you know what I mean? like, <laughs> yeah it's not like whatever i did we lose lewis Wait, there he is. He's back. Oh, he's back. He's back. Um, I don't know, guys. We're like two hours and ten minutes in here. Um, I could probably go in to deeper detail about some various things. Um, I got a whole list of things here, but uh, I don't know. Is there anything else you guys would like to jump in and cover? Or Lewis, well, I feel like I've talked too much already on this show, so. No, I think you just need to go out and watch the movie. I think if you listen to this interview and you see the depth of work and stuff that Scott's done, this will should whet your interest into into watching the movie for sure. And like I said, I, to, I, I think it's to the movie's credit it's not a kayaking movie for sure. And speaking as a kayaker, I just enjoyed it that much more because of that. So, and you guys are—I mean, I think you guys are being a little modest 
downplaying the whitewater a little bit because like there is some sick paddling in there like we're running in there yeah sure and i mean honestly we sat around after the movie for like an hour discussing it you know what i mean wow trying to figure out like you know what we made of it and you know i mean a lot of it had to do with you know we know some of the people in there but still it's just an interesting movie for sure because it it just it, it made me think about like what what do you have to do and be to be a great athlete you know what i mean and what kind of person is that and, mm-hmm. and what happens is that person gets older and experiences hardships. I mean, that was definitely one of the themes I was really paying attention to, you know? Mm. Yeah. And also, like, how much of that is, is like, truly essential, right? You know? It's like there are... The edge. You're talking about the personality edge? Yeah. I mean, there's certainly, like, like that... that There are people out there, you know, like, you know, if you watch, like, The Last Dance, like the Michael Jordan documentary, and, like, you know, like, he's like pretty hard on people and like, you know, like, you know, Kobe Bryant had that reputation and then it's like, you know, like that certainly seems like you could put Scott in just in the movie, at least you could sort of like put your character in that mold a bit, but it seems like, you know, as you, as the story unfurls, there's a, maybe a little bit of an examination of like how much of that is is essential, you know, like, is that fair? I, I think so for sure. I think that I think that that is a path towards excellence, and there's plenty of examples of athletes that excel by being that way. But I'm also a firm believer that there that there is another way. You know, it doesn't it doesn't always have to be like that. And I think that's definitely I don't know. I think I think just even looking at the footage and looking at like there's a very genuine um, transformation going on. You know, throughout the throughout the film and the story. Um, and I think it's cool to see Scott arrive at that destination. Cause I feel like a lot of other athletes, like, I don't know, like it's, it, there isn't always the edge. There's not always this sort of, um, this drive that has to be there to like make it, um, I don't know, I, I guess there's another way to arrive at excellence. And I think that you can be empathetic and kind towards your, your team and everything. But at the end of the day, like we are dealing with extremely dangerous, you know, hazardous conditions where you do have to kind of compartmentalize fear and you do have to shut off certain emotions so as to you know get through something that's life-threatening so i think that the you know when that trickles into your day-to-day life and your sort of normal routine that's when it becomes you know it can be pretty detrimental um to, I mean, your, but, to your health but with scott that, i mean do you feel like i mean you were i mean as you just described i mean you were on a tear there i mean doing stuff on such a pace and such a scale i mean do you think uh, i almost have to believe you have to have a certain amount of self you know, uh, you just have to have a, a, a ridiculous amount of confidence and a bit of ruthlessness to well, get that I, accomplished. Uh, totally if, if, you're, if you're going to get bogged down with other people's problems, it's just, just not going to happen sometimes. Um, yeah, it's a hundred percent. I mean, it, it was the, 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 yeah, I, I, everything that was, you know, said, I surrounded myself with like-minded people because if you showed instability on the river, it was a threat to the safety of the expedition. And the as Rush alluded to, I couldn't compartmentalize that behavior. I was taking that behavior and pushing it through everything else in my life. So if my girlfriend was showing emotional instability, I'd just be like, what are you crying about? 
Like, <laughs> time to run the show. <laughs> like, stop <laughs> you know, and and that just that that doesn't work. You know what I mean? And and then and and then if you're like dealing with like normal people, um, it doesn't work. But it works really well on the river. And then if you're like alpha, and then you surround yourself with a bunch of like-minded people, um, you know, it just it, it propels. And, and, and that's exactly what I did. And, 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 and the lack of awareness, um, is, is, and, and, and the inability to separate those things. And, and I can now show up on the river and, and, and compartmentalize that behavior that I need to have on the river and then show up in my regular life and, and be a genuine person and not drag those patterns that I use. And it's tricky because when I had those, when when I had zero awareness around those behaviors, I was being reinforced with accolades, uh. and 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 when you're getting reinforced with accolades on the behavior, um, it even de- it, 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 you become delusional almost with to a certain degree as to like what your ego is and what your identity is and what, you know, what your intellect is. And, 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 and it wasn't until I learned what and had awareness around those things and then able to separate that I was able to actually like let go of that and not put value in that and put value in presence and, 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 and showing up in the moment because that's the most important, um, thing that you can do for anyone with your kids, with your partner, with your friends. Um, and when you show up on the river, boom, you slide back in. You're, you're an actor at that point. You slide back into the persona that you, you know, developed. And for me, you know, it was natural because as a kid, I was in flight or flight my entire life. You know, I grew up in tough neighborhoods. I was in fights all the time. I was in a very fight or flight upbringing. And I was in on a trajectory, you know, a, a huge percentage of my friends that I grew up with are in prison or or are or, or down the darkest of darkest roads. And, you know, the river was my escape. And, and then all of a sudden, like if I'm like, um, you know, instead of getting in trouble or doing illegal shit, I'm running super hard whitewater, then that, that like that was for me that was it was such a different vehicle you know for me to get out from doing this other stuff and and i just the more accolades i got the bigger everything else got and and the more um unapproachable i became um every room that i walked into i just felt like i was having the life sucked out of me and and i just wanted to be on the river anytime anything became complicated i would just run to the river it was my escape that was great but what happens when the river gets taken away and i i never planned for that i always said you can take everything away from me but you can't take the river away from me i'll just go fuck off on the river and then when the river got taken away i had nothing and so then it was like oh my god what am i going to do and I didn't know how to ask for help. And that's that's a scary place to be. And then you have something where I intuitively I knew something was wrong, but I didn't I didn't I, I you know, I 
I went and saw doctors and stuff, but I didn't know how to, uh, nothing, you know, from the time that I stepped out of the kayak to the time I was diagnosed, oh my God, it was like six years. And then, you know, they say, you know, one of the scariest things, right? When you're in prison, one of the things that they do when you act out is they put you in the hole, right? They isolate you, right? One of the darkest things that you can do to yourself is self-inflicted isolation, right? When you put that on yourself and you can see, feel, go and do anything that you want, but you can't get out of bed. And so many people that are dealing with cancer that look at cancer or tumors or mental illness as weakness, they don't know how to ask for help. You know how many friends of mine that have been diagnosed that come to me now that I've let go and are telling me their personal journey with it, but are in the same breath telling me, don't tell them what's going on here. And especially with men, this is something that came up with First Descent. This is one of the things that Brad and I, when we reconnected down in South America a few years ago, he approached me, you know, because I told Brad what was going on. This is Brad Ludden. And he was like, um, hey, I want to talk to you about something. He's like, 75% of our applicants, something like that, 75 or 80% of our applicants are female. And I was like, I know why. And, you know, this is a, this is like what First Descent does that the medical community doesn't do um, is that they, they diagnose, they treat, and then they kick you to the curb. And there's nothing left on the back end. Sure, there might be a little PT involved, but there's nothing there's no emotional support at all. And that's what's so amazing about First Descents is that it's, it pulls people into the outdoors and it brings, them to, it brings people that are dealing with similar situations and it allows you to openly have conversation about this place that you're in. And in my case, when I was diagnosed and during that period of time, I was by myself. I was on my own. I mean, I had people coming and going a little bit, but I was on my own and I didn't want help. And I didn't want, uh, I didn't know how to ask for help. And so I just, you know, um, helped, you know, with Brad and, and, and with everyone just like explaining, like, you know, this is something that, I wanted to articulate and, and explain to where everyone understood that, that, that they're not alone and that I'm not alone. And I think a pivotal moment too for Rush and I was uh, we had gone, I, I'll give me one second, John. And, and I was, I was, uh, I had got invited to speak at, at First Ascents and I hadn't spoke and told my story publicly. Um, from like a top to bottom. And I wrote this whole thing out. I did like 20 something pages the night before we're sitting in the hotel room. 
and I read it to Rush. And Rush looks over at me and he's like, you're not going to fucking read that. And I was like, no, I'm not going to read it. But I'm, I'm scared to, like, let it go. And so the next morning I woke up and I took an ice bath. And then I went back to the room. I folded the thing up and I threw it in my bag. And I went up and I basically got up in front of 200 people at First Descent and I told my story. And the whole room cried. Like, two, a third of the way, like, they cried. Like, it was crazy, the response that, that we got. And I think, I can't speak for Rush, but it was a really powerful moment. And that helped me surrender more. I was, that even helped me open up more. Like, if, if, if this film helps a couple people, then, oh my God, job done. You know, like, so grateful to even have the opportunity to be in the position that I'm in to share what I have to share. Well said. I think uh, one thing, the takeaway for me from the film was just that shift in perspective. I mean, no matter how savage the river is, you can always eddy out. You can always reassess. You can stop. But when you found out you had brain cancer, there was no stopping. You know what I mean? Like you were like, you, you were submitted to the flow. I don't know. Like I, that really resonated was that perspective shift. That was like, I was like, man, that's a perspective that is hard to grasp. You know, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a perspective. It's hard yeah. To I mean, it took, it took, it took, it took a DUI. It took brain cancer. It took a chick tricking me into getting help. You know, um, it took so much for me to get to this place to where I actually was able to get help. And then just the, the way that it unfolded, it's not, it, it, it can be scripted, you know, like, it's it's just I just feel so grateful and so lucky um, that I was able to 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 be here and then to be able to share and and let go and yeah surrender. I mean that's ultimately like what I've had to do is just surrender, like no control of anything. And I'm still battling a tumor. And if, like, there is no conquering, there is no, you know, as I say in the film, I'm not trying to pave roads. I'm just trying to stay on the road. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. That's profound. I mean, that's, <laughs> that will be a remembered, you know, I don't want to talk too much about the film, but that'll be a remembered statement right there. You coming to the Green Race this year? Oh man, EG's trying to talk me into coming. EG's trying to talk me into coming to the southeast for like two or three weeks in September. So you might see me, bud. Yeah, you should I come down. The Green Race, but I would, I would, I would, uh, I, I hear it's it's uh, the highest consistent runnable white water in the world, anywhere in the world these days. <clears throat> This is the only one that are getting any weather. It's, We're not getting anything out here. Jeez. Yeah. It's terrible. 
Well, you gotta guys, get you out there for get you got for a little white race too, Grace. Yeah, we well, do. I think you need to build a dam and put some water in the river, bro. <laughs> I flew to DC to visit my parents. Uh, we flew in a couple of days ago, and we were driving from the airport, and it started raining. And my kid and I both rolled on the windows and just put our hand out the window and touched the rain. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Yeah, nice. like, you don't understand, man. There's <laughs> some shit coming out of the sky right now. Did you see that? So, so true. <laughs> oh, man. I would be scared to run a longboat down the green. Oh, my God. I'd be kind of scared. I would probably, like, have to practice that a lot. I haven't been in a longboat. I, I got a first-generation Diablo from Sierra yes. Outdoor Center the other day and I raced that on the South feather um, or the North feather actually. And Oh my God, man, that thing steers like a train. It was, <laughs> and it's so like, it's so, there's so low volume. I cannot believe how much shit I ran in that. You ran a Scott's drop in a Diablo, right? Oh yes. Loaded. Yes. Yeah. Dude, First sure. generation Diablo loaded. I'll never forget it. Uh, I'll <laughs> sign that one up for anyone that, Anyone that wants to sign up and do that one, let me know. I'd love to go. <laughs> Dude, it's it, the green flows way easier than you think in a long boat, man. It really does. Yeah, it's super, it's super <laughs> chill. Nothing can go wrong out there. All the encouragement and, and yeah, influence in the world watching his GoPro lines the last. <laughs> it's been amazing. <laughs> uh, well oh, I, I think i'm gonna shut down this interview here um big thank you to scott big thank you to rush you guys for yeah. coming on and uh you know typically yeah. we go into some listener mail and some other stuff here before we get into rants and raves but if you would uh like to go ahead and stick on stick with us here on the show um, we usually shut down with some rants or raves something you're stoked about or not so fired up about you guys interested in sticking around, or you want to bugger off? We've been here for two hours and two and a half hours. Why not <laughs> stick it out for a few more minutes, bud? All right, well, I'm going to lead us off here. I'm going to lead us off. Uh, I'm going to rant. I'm going to rant about the smoke in my air right now from the forest fires in Oregon and California. So if Deal you guys could just dampen that shit down a little bit, <laughs> just so it's not smoky here. <laughs> That's 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 gonna be my rant right there. So it's crazy, dude. I've never seen this. Like it's like hazy here. I mean, like you go up on top of the hill, dude, and it looks like you're in freaking downtown LA. It's nuts. So yeah, appreciate that, boys. Yeah, you're welcome. Gentlemen, <laughs> <laughs> what do you got? Bring the heat. All right, dig deep. I got a solid old man rant here that I've like been really trying to suppress, but I'm I'm breaking it out. All right, I love it. I'm the the ironic mullet. You're over. I'm it. over it. I'm over it. It's like like looking looking like terrible, just like as a joke. It's like it's funny, but like you still look terrible. You have, like you are showing your age, dude. Like the ironic mullet. It's like it's, I don't know. It was kind of funny a while ago, but like it's it's run its course. Like get oh. a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it's a rant or a rave, but I could phrase it as a, as a rant, I suppose. You don't need a bed shaft unless there's something seriously wrong with you, like a medical condition in your wrist. Having used a bed shaft just out of habit for years i finally pick up a straight shaft i'm like what the fuck was i doing hey i've been saying get a, that a, a long a show time. Gun too. just get a show gun. I, I understand the dodge is fine and great but the show <laughs> a better paddle 
Well, I'm right there with you, but I, I can't do bench shaft. I try it, and every time I end up injured using those things, and I I, I went back to the straight shaft, and yep. Yeah, yeah right. it's lighter. It, it paddles longer. If you want to yeah. lay, if you want to lay treats, you need a straight shaft. Playing <laughs> 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 treats in a bench shaft almost a oh nice starter. Josh, I like, like, I like, I like it for freestyle. <laughs> I think for freestyle, kind of the jam. And I, I also <laughs> say, Scott, your your thirty degree offset's a bit disappointing. And I was, I was tempted to have Grace end the interview right there, but I'm glad we pushed through. <laughs> Oh man! So what are you at? Are you at forty-five? That's why we're thirty-three. You're at sixty. Yeah, you cannot. When you punch through, you just can't paddle vertically unless it's zero sixty degrees. Hey, and you can't really feather a bow draw unless you're sixty degrees. Trouble punching through holes. <laughs> What's that? Dane, ja Dane Jackson's at thirty degrees. He doesn't have any trouble. Dane punching. Jackson's not an example for anything. He can paddle like <laughs> just, <my> <laughs> just, just do a paddle like this. You know what I'm saying? That's thirty degrees down here. I mean, it's okay if you can't punch a hole. At least I can roll up after I get rolled up. <laughs> if you need a 30 degree to roll in the second part of Scott's drop, then more power to you. I do, but I need every little thing I can get. I take every advantage that I can get these days, man. I have no shame in that game. I think my rant, my rant, my rant is Dane Jackson, actually. Thank oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God. This is the only thing you remember about the show, like, by the way. It's kind of like it's almost it's it's kind of a no. It's like not that it's not that amazing, you know. Like it's it's or it's too amazing. It's too good. It's like too refined, too crisp. Like he just kind of like nails everything. It's like I just it's you know I don't know. It's annoying. I just, it's, it's yeah, annoying. It's, we're tuned out. At it's this point. true. It's like there are those like athletes who are just like such naturals that you just like can't even like identify with them. You know, it's like watching yeah. like Brandon Semenuk ride a bike or something. You're just like, this is a video game. This is not. It's like the new Eminem for me. Like I really respect him a lot, but it it uh, it's just it's too perfect. It's like <laughs> give me a little, give me some flaws somewhere, dude. Like I know you beat her. You gotta beat her more than you let on. You know, like some somewhere. People ask us if we're gonna spot, like if we would sponsor Dane, if, as if you would ask us. So I'm like, he's he's just too good. You yeah. know, he's not doing your gear any credit. He's just too <laughs> good. Yeah, it doesn't really matter what he's paddling with. Uh, all right, um, I'm gonna do a rant. I'm, I hope I can articulate this the right way, but uh, I'm gonna do a rant to all the companies that allocate marketing money to Instagram models. It absolutely <laughs> drives me bananas. I swear every penny that's spent to an Instagram influencer versus a real athlete should be hung. Gelman, <laughs> you're all off the team. Out there that are yep. not allocating funds to the people that are out there trying to live the dream, they can tie a weight to their neck and go jump in a lake. <laughs> That's a solid oh, rant. Right? My uh, my <laughs> boss Adam told me that he was out at, at Great Falls the other day, and there were these like like steakhead guys down there who had brought like full like universal bars like down to the edge of the river so they could like take pictures of themselves like doing me. squats. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just insane. I just I'm so god. I just want the kids to live the dream like we did. I want to see them get budgets and I just struggle when people are allocating to 
selfies. <laughs> savage, man. Savage. <laughs> Such bullshit. Dude, I think everyone on this panel right here is in full agreement with that. Yeah, you're preaching the choir there. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do make some money off of influencer campaigns. Oh, so. Jesus. Yeah. There we go, hey, Rush. At least you're a real athlete. <laughs> I mean, that's the difference. At least I mean, it's you're all, a real it's athlete. It's the people that aren't athletes here. that are just getting, yeah, these insane money grabs and stealing money from the kids that really deserve it. It's not, not, uh, yeah, Tyler's not more fair. than a pretty face, too. You know, there's more to him than that, Rush. Hey. <laughs> I don't care what like as long as they're doing something cool. Support that. I mean, but Rush has got a great smile, dude. I would fucking throw some he coin does. on his Instagram. Yeah. He does. Oh, He's the full package deal. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting old, man. I'm getting too old. Whole 36, huh, bud? I go paddle with the old man group, and they're all like 12, 12 years younger than me. And I'm like... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, three hours deep. Thank you for listening to Hammer Factor episode eighty three. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Rush. Thank and, you guys. Uh, awesome. Yeah, check out the River Runner. Uh, where can we learn more about the like? Where, if 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 someone wants to, what, what's the next step for someone Post who's trailer interested? Or a website or a flyer? Yeah. yeah. Where do we go? Where do we go? We'll where do we know. go? <laughs> yeah. You can just. Just follow us on Instagram. I'm working on a website. Um, I'm a little behind on some stuff, but uh, but actually, sir, social media is probably the best place to find out anything about it uh, <laughs> at this point. Well, sick, dude. Well, thanks for coming on, guys. That was sick. Heck yeah, boys. Peace. Right, later.